Chris, I need to know, how do I pronounce your last name? Just so I can f*** it up when it's my turn to say it. It it, uh, it rhymes with Bieber, unfortunately. Right. Bieber. <laughs> that's, what, Jeez, that's what I thought it was. That's in my head. That's what I was like. That's probably what it is. But it's, I was like, I should just, probably ask. You would not believe how long I've ignored that comparison until you just realize. <laughs> just it's, the thing about language is there's a language you speak and there's a language that people understand. That is just the most efficient way to say it. Yeah, I, it's, it just pronounces the same as that jackass and just changed the B to an S. <laughs> <laughs> so TJ, do not refer to him as the Seebs. <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to call him uh, Chris Bieber. <laughs> oh, sorry. Never mind. Scott, Scott, you can edit that out. <laughs> um, is this kind of like a round table where we'll all discuss a little bit, but I'll, I'll lead my little segment? Yeah. All right. We're going to talk about... <laughs> Suddenly I'm wide awake. <laughs> that said, to Scott's point about there's there's little you can't come back from. You can't come back from dropping a sob draken on the floor and grinding it under your heel for two minutes out of pure rage. <laughs> Welcome to the Posse. This is episode 30, and we are glad you've joined us as we discuss scale modeling. I know you're used to hearing Scott do this intro, but he forced me to do it. So here we are. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Scott Gentry, John Manani, Doug Smith, and Ivan Jensen-Taylor. How you guys doing? Good. What's up, man? We're all good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, jinx. In, in stereo. <laughs> and we also have a special guest sitting in with us tonight. Chris Bieber, I mean, Chris Sieber, a.k.a. Left from 72. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Chris. Yeah, nice one, buddy. Yeah, it's good to be here in the jump seat or the rumble seat or riding shotgun. I don't know what you guys call it when uh, the Jim Bates seat. I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, guys. <laughs> when, when Jim's here, he makes us call it the throne. So. <laughs> and I bet you guys wish it was an ejector seat. I got it. Hey, hey, all, before we get started, we just want to wish our good friend Stuart Clark of the Scale Model Podcast to get well soon. Uh, feel better, Stu. We're thinking about you, and we hope for a quick recovery. Also, we want to mention Mike Rinaldi of Rinaldi Studio Press kicked off his Patreon account today. If you are a fan of Mike's work, please head on over to RSP's Patreon page and check it out. We'll post a link on our page uh, to give you a quick access to it. And then also, we're going to talk about some new releases, specifically a 136 scale spit, uh, Mark One Late that looks gorgeous if box arts are anything to be judged. I certainly judge a kit by the box art, so that one's going to be a stunner. Border Models Crusader Mark II, and of course the new Tamiya 135th scale Hellcat that I'm jonesing for. So, Scott, what are your thoughts on that new Hellcat? I- it's about time. Man, I am so excited. Seeing a picture of the rear hole on that that's actually done with an insert. Oh, man, I'm, I could not be more excited. 
And it's also funny because uh, this this week is when episode 29 came out and clearly like Steve's logo was shaking the magic eight ball and wishing for a M18 <laughs> and boom, here we go. So that was perfect timing. That's right. Thanks, Steve. What about that Crusader 2, though? I mean, that's that's no slouch release either, TJ. Yeah, so I, I think I, I caused a few waves in one of our little group chats earlier this week. Uh, I'm more excited about the Crusader 2 than I am the Hellcat. That's only because the Crusader is my, after the Sherman, is my favorite tank ever. I love Crusaders, and I love my Crusader 3. Crusader 2 looks cool. I don't give a crap that it's got a German guy in it and it's got captured markings on it. You can, I'm going to throw all that stuff in the trash because I just don't care. I want mine in proper colors with proper markings as a British tank the way it belongs. So I can't wait to get that. You know, it was interesting when they threw the the box art out there. There were some haters with the uh, with the, you know the German Balkenkreutz on it and the German figure, and I and I liked. I like the quick response by border models and just basically said like German stuff sells. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's the name of the game business at the end of the day is, is really what's going on here. So I'm certainly looking forward to it. If you throw the figure away, please ship it to me. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I was, I was being sarcastic. I will keep the figure. If, if, if I had to guess, I'm sure there's British markings in the box. Like I know with their crusader yeah. three, there's I think four markings. Oh so yeah. I would imagine you know, but obviously put the German one on the on the cover because everyone, yeah. ooh, German, I'm going to buy that. Now, quick question, who makes the 132nd skill spit? Kotara. Yeah, is that Kotara. how you say it? Or Kotari. I mean, I, I think in the Polynesian language, they tend to pronounce sort of every syllable almost as you see it. So I feel like it's, it's like Kotare or Katari. I'm not sure about the E at the end. Well, we're just going to say Katari, and then if someone corrects us, we can fix it. Okay, and these are the former wingnut guys, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. So you know, one of the other releases, certainly something that I'm interested in, but it might be a little big for you, Chris. What do you? But what do you think? Do you think you'll pick it up? Oh, I uh, can you not pick it up? I mean, I grabbed a few wingnut wings kits as once they once they knew that they were they were done because I don't feel like paying four hundred dollars or five hundred dollars for one down the road, but <laughs> I you know, and having seen what they put together. I mean, I will have to just build a bigger workbench and build a bigger house to live in in order to to show it off. But I'll make it happen, right? You know, I learned learned the last time. I'll get in a little earlier this time. Yeah, I know that there's been yeah. a lot of comment. Sorry, <laughs> there's been a lot of comment. In re- no, like another thirty second Spitfire Mark One or another thirty second Spitfire. Do we need that? It's like, well, brand new company. You could not ask for a better first release. It's going to sell. Lots of people are going to buy it. And when you look at the CAD drawings of the rendering, stress skin, riveting, it's, 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 it looks like it's going to be the be-all and end-all of the Mark One late Spitfire in 30-second scale. It's going to do incredibly well. And then later on, maybe maybe we'll all finally get a 30-second Hurricane in like amazing quality. You never yeah. know. Yeah, and my answer would be, yes, we need another Spitfire. The Mark One late is the classic interceptor version of that aircraft. It's incredibly important. And frankly, the only kits that are available, it's similar to the Crusader that we talked about. The only kits that are available are literally decades old. It's tired tooling, and it's just not up to today's standards. So do we need another Spitfire? Hell yeah. I found that if you ever have to ask the question, do we need another XYZ? If you want to make money, the answer is 
Yes. I mean, as a company, the answer is yes. Do we need another Tiger One? Do you like printing money? Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. That's your that's your answer. Do we need another Spitfire? Yeah. Everyone loves Spitfires. It's just one of those things. Yeah. And I think what's important about this release, I've been looking at some of the close CAD renders and the stress skin for around the rivets, the fabric, uh, even the doping material is captured. So I'm really excited to see the surface texture and and what, uh, dare I say, an armor modeler can do to an aircraft because of all that rich texture. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting that, like you said, you know, this debate about do we need another one? Well, when there hasn't been one done to this degree, yeah, absolutely. We need another one. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't just, oh, it's another Spitfire. You know, obviously Tamiya makes kits that, that fall together and that's sort of what they're known for. But, you know, if Wingnut or not Wingnut Wings, if Qatari can come anywhere close to that and deliver that, that kind of fidelity of detail, you know, I think it's going to be it's just going to be the, probably the best 132nd aircraft out there, period, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's just going to snowball. It's going to, and I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this company progresses. I mean, Wingnut Wings was, I, I think, always at the whim of, of Peter Jackson. And I think, you know, when you have somebody who is more business-minded at the helm of it now and backed up by Richard Alexander and those, those Wingnut Wings designers, you know, that could be the magic combination that Wingnut Wings should have had in the first place. Right, which to take nothing away from Richard as a as a manager, but you know when you still respond to somebody else who's who's eclectic, right? Then you know you're always sort of at a at a a bit of a crossroads with with balancing success against what that guy wants to do. So, I mean, it could be the magic formula that that we needed way back in the beginning. I think one thing that's clear, Chris, that's a great point. I think one thing that's clear is. The entire modeling community is rooting for these guys to just knock it out of the park. I, we all wish them the best of success, and I think it's a great pick for a project, and I'm excited to see what they bring to the table. Yeah, 100%. Do we know that they're going to focus on solely 132nd, or do they plan on expanding into other scales? We don't know yet. Yeah, I haven't okay. heard anything. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe one of the gentlemen, um, I forget his name, but him and another guy were doing a Kickstarter for a 109 and Spit in like wargaming scale. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, so that's Beacon Models. Okay. Uh, yeah. And you're yeah. right, they were doing a one, 144th scale. They were starting with the Spitfire and they're starting with the, with the 109 and they have plans basically to do almost everything that was in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. I think those are two other designers. Okay. So, you know... It's good to see that that everybody who is involved with Wingnut Wings seems to be finding their own legs and and finding yeah. their own way to make a uh, an impact in the the hobby again. But I'm pretty sure those are those are two other designers, okay, uh, apart from the ones from Qatari. And from what I heard about that company, apparently it's going to be a UK based company, which oh. also drew a lot of attention because there aren't many around these days over here. Who is there besides? Airfix for aviation. I mean, I know there's a number of smaller naval produced. I mean, there's Black Cat models, there's Starling, and I know actually one of the guys involved with Beacon has his own uh, Guilin miniatures. I think uh, I think it's Welsh, so I probably haven't even come close to saying that properly. But uh, and I know that's where he was. He was doing his work initially. Was doing uh, one seven hundred scale ships, modern modern ships. So it seems like there's a number of naval producers, but I. It doesn't seem like there's that much in the way of aviation or, or armor, but you'd know better than I, Ivan. 
<laughs> well, yeah, um, I could just name Erfix and that's it. <laughs> hey, that's more than the U.S. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, what's on the horizon is really rich for the hobby. I'm certainly excited for every one of those uh, models. And, you know, what goes good with a model is a mat for your workbench. The Plastic Posse Podcast is sponsored by Tankcraft. Tankcraft makes the highest quality products for the discerning scale modeler, and we are proud that they are now an official sponsor of the Triple P. So who is Tankcraft? Tankcraft makes beautiful self-healing cutting mats that will take your bench to the next level. Not only do they look amazing, they are made to stand up to your toughest builds. Constructed from heavy-duty laminated 3mm thick PVC, they have excellent self-healing and cut-resistant properties. But the best part is the beautifully rendered blueprint-like drawings of World War II vehicles printed up on the front. Up armor your bench by adding a mat with a Panther or a Tiger One in Panzer Grey, or a T-34-85 or M-4A-3 Sherman in military green. They come in two sizes, 12 by 18 and 18 by 24 inches, with an inch grid and a centimeter border for handy reference. Not a tank guy, not a problem. Tankcraft has you covered with their Aircrafter Series modeler mats. Take your bench to new heights with the mighty P-47D Thunderbolt, P-51D Mustang, or the venerable Spitfire Mark 5B. We've got an exclusive offer for Plastic Posse listeners only. Use the code POSSE15 at checkout for a 15% discount. So head on over to tankcraft.com. That's tankcraft.com. Hey, your bench called. It wants a new mat. The Triple P is also sponsored by Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. These blocks allow you to have controlled precision sanding that yields fantastic results. Head over to seanscustommodeltools.com and order a set today. Speaking of that, I really need to order myself some. I do not have any. That is shocking. I should not be allowed on this show. <laughs> wow, Ivan, come on, man. You do need some. Episode 29 of the Triple P is also sponsored by Ian McCauley. And our deputy marshals, the Posse Outriders, Grant, Paul, David, Ethan, Jamie, Steve, and Rick. These Posse members all help us to bring you this podcast. If you would like to donate to the Posse, just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little heart icon. Just click it, and then you can donate any amount you would like. You don't have to do that, but we really, really appreciate your support. Just a reminder, the Plastic Posse podcast is just one of several scale modeling podcasts. Uh, you can head on over to modelpodcasts.com for a list of all scale modeling podcasts and some modeling blogs as well. All right, before we uh, start talking about the group bills, let's talk about what everyone here has going on on their own bench. So, Scott, I'm going to start with you. What have you been doing? In the last, uh, since the last time we recorded, what I've been working on is research for uh, our M3, M4 group build, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Trying to find a unit. It looks like I've finally done that. Found an actual British unit that fielded the uh, Mark IIc Achilles, which is my entry. Just been researching the hull and the turret and the mix of production features and, you know, the units and all that kind of stuff. So that's really what I've been doing. Uh, JB, what have you been working on? 
Oh man, I hate to be that guy, but I'm actually working on a secret project. Um, but no, seriously, I am working on a project for something big. Um, it's something that I've never done before and hopefully will be announced soon. So I'm super stoked to get that polished off and shipped out. So John, are we, I mean, how, how big are we talking? Are we talking like, holy big or just like, uh, eh, kind of big or like, I mean. So, I mean, it's something that I've never done. So it'll be. The secret is, I guess, I'm writing a book on building a specific type of model, and I'm in collaboration with someone. So super stoked to get that released and, you know, hopefully have the opportunity to do another one. Yeah, onward and upward in that case. That is one project that's nearing its completion, which is good because I never like uh, projects that I have a deadline for because they're stressful. So Ivan, I completely sympathize with you. (laughs) Looking across my bench, I have a couple other things uh, strewn about. But yeah, I have Vargas Models Paper Panzer World War One tank, 35th scale. It's modulated, needs a little needs a little camo scheme. Really nice kit. Uh, you know, that's what we picked up at Nats. So that's one. And then there's a few other odd bits strewn about. But you know, I'm kind of wrapping down operations here in Pennsylvania in the in the uh, preparation for the move out west. And then I really want one of those M18s. So if you're listening to me, please send me one. <laughs> oh, they will. Pretty Don't worry, pleased. John. They'll send you one. <laughs> Pretty please. <laughs> Doug, what's been uh, going on at your bench? Um, well, I mentioned last episode that I started just for kicks and giggles beating out some little 144 scale Bandai Star Wars kits. And I've actually got some of them sitting right here. I've got bits and pieces that I've been working on. Um, that's four ships, little TIE fighters, uh, two TIE fighters, two TIE advanced. Just having a good time with those while I... Look at the Spitfire. I'm not a cockpit guy, and I've been eyeballing that control panel going, maybe I just order a control panel after the conversation we had on SMCG today. I'll uh, think about just cheating, as some people like to call it. <laughs> anyway, that's that's what it's been this week. Um, did you know that that building little tiny models, I mean, maybe Chris knows this, the smaller you go, the harder it is? Just 100%. Saying. Holy yeah. smokes. A, a 70 second scale TIE, <laughs> uh, second scale TIE fighter is a piece of cake. The way Bandai designs it, you've got the black panels and the framing is all separate. You paint them, you put it together. I got to tape off every one of these panels and paint them. This, this is hard. This isn't easy, but it's fun. But it'll make you a better modeler. It will. It will. Basic modeling <laughs> skills. <laughs> Chris, what's uh, been going on over your bench? Uh, I've been trying to get a couple things sort of off the shelf of, well, not Doom, but just sort of long-term memory loss, maybe. I've got a uh, an Edward Spitfire Mark 9E in 172nd scale that's finally getting some paint. I've got a Fokker D, D, uh, E5 D8, whatever they ended up calling it, uh, with some from Arma Hobby that's also sort of in those those last stages. I ended up pulling the trigger and getting a, a little rosin engine for it. So the I think it's about five-eighths of an inch wide for the Americans. And I think there's about 34 pieces in it or something like that. And in the end, you'll only see about three cylinders, but that's okay. It's uh, just got fantastic detail. So those are the two things I'm really trying to, to clear off the bench. Got roped into this M3, M4 armor build. So that's, that's a treat because I don't know where the wings go. And uh, the landing gear is always down. So it's all really pretty confusing. And then the last thing is is a, a border model 172nd scale Leopard 2A6 is the one I settled on for the Bundes build in the SMCG. So so that's kind of the four that I'm trying to keep my head on. I won't lie and 
And I'll say that there's a razor crest that kind of snuck in there somewhere. It may not be the only thing that snuck in, but if I have to keep it to four, that's those are the four I'll go with. How's that a uh, border? I mean, uh, seventy second scale leopard. Oh, it's fantastic. I I've been sitting here poring over it, comparing it to to reference photos, looking for anything that they might have missed, and. I would say 98, 97, 98% of the bolts, the little probably two-inch loopholes that they use to to tie on brush and, and camouflage netting and stuff, all that stuff is on there. The only thing I've sort of done so far is the uh, there's some poles that I guess that they use to prop the camo netting off the tank. I've gone and fabricated those out of, out of brass and, and plastic just so they have some depth and dimension. As somebody pointed out, they said, yeah, it looks great. Too bad it's going to be hidden under that great big turret, which is true. But at the same time, I think because it has more depth and definition to it now, it's going to show up better in that shadow area if if that's how I orient the turret. Otherwise, I'll just turn the turret so you can see it. Put a big red arrow pointing down to it so everybody knows to look at it. And I've done a few other little things around like the the tow hooks and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it's a remarkably, detail-wise, it's a remarkably complete model for 172nd scale. I'm really impressed with it. And the fit's fine. I mean, there's no there's no little piece of it yet that I found that is is any kind of a challenge, so... Yeah, I'm really happy with it. I think it's gonna be a fantastic build. So Ivan, other than making wildly out of scale straps for <laughs> sandbags, uh, what what has been going on on your bench? Yeah, so uh, the, the sandbags for the M10 are amazing. That the, the sculpting on them and the, the texture, amazing. The fit, on the other hand, a bit of surgery required for the plastic. So I'm, I'm I'm trying to read three sets of instructions to try and work out what Voyager stuff needs to go on first, if it needs to go on at all, what I can cut off the plastic, and then what I can fit for the resin. This is just day one of the M10, so this is going to be a really fun couple of weeks. Apart from that, I too, just like John, am working on a top secret project that I was given a five-month deadline for two months ago, and I'm still nowhere near completing it. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) That's the thing. With a deadline, I hate them but I somehow produce my best work in doing them. Um, I think it's because I've got someone dependent on the build. It's like, no, the world's going to see this, so you can't be shit. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's stressful, and it's not a build I would usually do because it's not military, but it's, it's going to be fun. But, yeah, it's, that's it, really. I've got kits coming in left, right, and center to review for Tamiya, um, which is always fun because um, I get free kits. Um, but apart from that, yeah, um, not been overly too busy, really. What about you, TJ? Uh, so I still have the Asuka M4 composite hull on my bench. It's now in olive drab, um, actually two colors of olive drab. So that's good. Um, hopefully tonight after this, and if my football team is getting dominated by the giants, which I doubt I might have some time to work on it. If not, I'm off tomorrow, which is Friday. Um, so I can mess with it pretty much all day long. Um, that's been really fun. I think I've mentioned before, that's my first Asuka kit. And it is spectacular. And the cool part is I have been sending pictures of it as I build it to Tomami from Asuka. So he knows that I'm building it and he's been following along, which is really cool. A super nice guy too. So that, that's that been really fun. And I still am kicking around that mini art Austin Armored car. I'm not going to paint the interior. I am going to paint the engine because the engine is just beautiful. Um, and I'm going to leave the, the, the door, the engine doors, I guess you would call them. Uh, on the side, I'm going to leave one open so you, you can kind of see in. But yeah, I decided yesterday, I'm like, I'm not doing this interior. It's too much work and I want to get it done and um, photograph and everything. And then other than that, that's pretty much it. I'm also working on a little Vargas models. 
uh, kit. I have a 70-second scale Holt Steam tank. It's a big three-wheel tank. It's blue-gray right now. I think I kind of went too dark on it, so I might actually repaint it. But it's really cool. It's it's really tiny. It fits in the palm of your hand. So our buddy Patrick uh, Paralysis is doing the 135th scale version of his, and he's almost done. It looks really, really good. So I'm like, oh, damn, I guess I got to do mine really good too then. <laughs> yeah, his has a really nice finish on it. I've really he been does. enjoying he, that build. And he's been working on He's been sending me pictures. So I think he did the wheels last night. So when I woke up this morning, I had a bunch of pictures of <laughs> big old steam wheels in, uh, in my inbox. And they were really, he has really nice patina on there. So I'm like, damn. <laughs> I guess I got to do that now too. Cause I was just going to kind of like BS my way through it just so I can get it done. But yeah, there's not, there's nothing better than a high bar set for you. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, talk about some group builds. Shall we? Um, the T34 group build is still going on. Um, actually got a couple invite or um, requests to join this week. So there's still work going on in there. And I know we say it every episode, but you know, if you want to please join the group build it's fantastic. Um, Lots of good work in there. The kid is amazing. So um, even if you don't really want to follow along the group build, if you just want a good um, place that has a lot of information about that kit, I think our group build is probably one of the best uh, places on social media to find it because so many people have built it. It's been very well documented. I know I mentioned Ford John has an awesome step-by-step with his. I think there's probably one or two other ones floating around in there too. Um, we have a bunch of information about the T3485, so check it out. It's really cool. Um, same thing goes with the TIE Fighter group build. They're TIE Fighters. They're awesome. And we've had activity in that group build, too. And then I know we've also mentioned before, the Spitfire group build. Still going strong. People are still working on Spitfires. Uh, John Colstein, I think that's how you say his last name. Sorry, John, if you listen and I butchered your last name, I pe- apologize. He just dropped an engine, and I think he's doing the Edwards Edward spit, um, and it looks absolutely awesome. So, yeah, still good work going on in there. And then going over to the Lee slash Grant slash Sherman build, that is still going ridiculously strong. I think we are now up to 66 entries. So at this point, what I think we're going to do is I'm – going to put together a list of subjects that are not represented. So if you're interested in joining, ask me or message us at the podcast to find out what we need built and we can get you a list of, of what we need. Cause at this point, I think most, if not all of the popular subjects, the common subjects have been spoken for quite a few have already started building. Um, so yeah, and we're that that's kind of where we are on that. Um if you are in the group build, quit asking me if you can change your freaking entry. <laughs> I've been asked like a bunch of times. I've been saying yes to everyone, but now we have so many builds. It is kind of getting hard to keep track of. Uh, I do my best. I I have a nice spreadsheet. I like spreadsheets, so I try to keep everything organized, but at the same time, trying to balance everything. And I, of course, most of this happens while I'm at work. So I'm like trying to work. I'm like, oh, let me let me look at this spreadsheet about models while I'm working. So, yeah, if you have a subject, go with that subject. When If we Zach need Grizzle. more. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've already told you. You're building one. If you finish that one in time, you can build another one. Finish the one you have now, which you haven't even started yet. There are so many odd 
Sherman subjects you could be you could be doing some really different kind of things. Somebody just requested today uh, to build a Ugandan super Sherman. So yeah, I mean, I like that. who even knew? I didn't even know that was a thing. But but more power to you. This is that's just cool stuff. So kind of kind of going with that. That's kind of what we need is weird. Well, I like to call it the minor nations. So as we've talked about, the the Sherman had a long service life, a ridiculously long service life for when it was built. So there exists an untold number of variants in different colors in use by a number of different nations. I think I said before, just uh, star decals makes decal sheets for like everything. Just look for just look for decal sheets. If you see something cool, you can reach out to me and we'll figure something out. And the other thing, if if there is something you need help with, feel free to ask me. I'm not the Sherman expert. I know a fair amount, but I know what kits there are, what's available, and I will help you find what you need. And so will pretty much everyone else on the posse. We're all pretty well versed in in kit availability and good aftermarket. So that's where we are with that. The group build also is starting to build up huge repositories like we touched on last time of photographs of vehicles, uh, detail shots from museums, a lot of references in there. And frankly, there's a lot of really great knowledgeable modelers in there as well. So it's just, just, it's become a really vibrant, terrific community. And if TJ doesn't know the answer, somebody in there is going to, you got to make sure that you're either going to be in at Nats in Omaha, or you're willing to ship your model to, to one of us. And, you know, we'll give you a hand with that as well, but we want to try and have as many models and as many modelers involved as we can. It's all about, you know, meeting each other and having a great time together. And it's all about fun. Yeah, I, I want to stress that both those points very heavily. Please, we really want you, if you're getting involved, to come to Nats. That's kind of how we're we're basing whether or not you take part in it. And that's not to be uninclusive or anything like that. But if you're not coming to the show, it's kind of it's going to be difficult to be a part of the group build, right? That's that's the whole point of it. And Yes, if you are willing to ship your kids to us, we will work with you and we will figure something out. I know John has talked about it. Help me out. I can help out. We will get everything sorted out. That and two, have fun. That's that's the the biggest the biggest point. And I've been having a blast. I love Shermans. I like building Shermans and I just like having a good time. So it's been really fun so far. And I think it's only gonna get better as as more people get their kits and start building. And the group has, there's already a fair amount of activity in the group, but when everyone's throwing their work up, like that's, that's what gets me going is seeing other people, you know, in, in their work. I love that. So TJ, we have a new official logo for the group, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. So uh, I had, when, did the, when did the stickers arrive? I should have, I should have them next week. Sweet. Uh, we have a member in the group, uh, Peter. Uh, I'm going to butcher his last Fidlotsky. name. Fidlotsky. Yeah, he is. Okay, he's he's Polish. Very talented modeler. Really funny guy. We, as as a posse, we were kicking around ideas of uh, updating our banner for the group Facebook group because it's now, it's encompassing all of the model geeks, half a plastic model mojo, and all of us, obviously. So we're kind of like, let's let's kind of bring everyone together and let every, you know, it's not just Plastic Posse Podcast. Like obviously, it, you know, we started it and ultimately it, it's our our baby. But at the same time, it's it's for everybody. 
So then John had the idea like, well, if everyone had anyone that has a logo for their painting page, which a lot of us do, uh, let's go ahead and throw it up and we'll make it like a collage. So I, I put out it. Hey, you know, in the group, I was like, hey, if you have a logo, send it to me because I want to make a collage of like everyone's logo so people can see who's involved. And and Peter responded with, uh, I, I don't have a logo, but I made this one really quick. And he clearly did it in Microsoft Paint. And it is uh, a, a little drawing of a guy uh, airbrushing a tank. And it says, building sermons is fun. Try it. And then it says <laughs> triple P on it. And it, is, it made me laugh so damn hard. The first time I saw it, I was like, that's amazing. Uh, I'm, <laughs> we're using that. And he's like, oh, no, 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 please don't. And I'm like, too too bad. <laughs> and then I, I, was, I was at work when all this was going on. Of course, I was showing everyone I was working with. We we're all laughing our asses off it off of it you know and they don't even know like what's going on i was like hey look at this and uh i get home and i'm i'm down here i'm like working on my on on my sherman and i was like you know what let's let's look at getting some stickers made so i did i got a hundred stickers made (laughs) didn't cost a whole lot it's worth every penny so here next week i'll have a bunch of stickers and i'm going to start mailing them out dropping them you know putting them in envelopes and sending them to everybody and and we'll have some in omaha too and yeah, it's just really funny. It's it's just kind of to, to have fun and and not take it too serious because it is really funny. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. I totally forgot about that. Well, I think that's just such a great indication of the community that that's jumping up around these group builds. Uh, you know, that's that's one thing that like following that conversation over the last couple of days has been an absolute riot, which makes makes the whole experience so fun. The other thing that's really struck me is what a, for lack of a better word, what a legacy these things are going to leave. You guys are talking about how many, the, the, the quality of the people involved, the quality of the builds. And especially with something like this, if you're building a Sherman from here on out and you need information, you need photos, you need to know how this kit went together, where the problems were with that kit, there's the resource right there, right? These group builds are, I mean, we look at them as being this thing that's happening right now. It's going to end next year at Nats, but you know, the value of these things for anybody who's building a Sherman is, you know, it's just going to keep going and going. So, you know, it's great. It's a great community thing. It's been super fun to be a part of as a, as a non-armor guy, but I, you know, I'm just amazed at, at how, how much of a great tool these are going to be going forward for anybody who's building one of these kits. I think it's a real, a real benefit to all. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I agree. That That's really cool. And, you know, right now the, the, the group is is focused more on the people that are you know taking part in the build, but you know probably as we get closer to the end, and we'll probably just open it up to anyone that that wants to join, make it public. That way, all the stuff in there, you know, people can see. Because and we're not trying to keep anything like hidden in the group, right? It's just we we have the group for us for everyone that's building it or, or taking part. So we're not trying to hide anything. Anyone that puts anything in that group, they're they're free to share it wherever they want on whatever platform they want it it doesn't matter there's nothing you know no secret squirrels stuff going on in there it's just you know a place for us to to get together all right so so we had a a brief pause last episode um because we had so much cool stuff to talk about with um uh the group bills and everything so we didn't get to to do a social media shout out so um, we're going to get back to that this episode and we're going to start with a really cool instagram account that doug found and it's called antediluvian animals it looks like these are all this dude sculpts all these in there i don't if the name doesn't give it away they're freaking dinosaurs man <laughs> everyone loves dinosaurs so and they're awesome i don't really know what the 
I guess they're just for display. I, I don't know if they're, they look almost like, like stop motion puppets, but, uh, holy cow, they're like really good. I, uh, I, he has a lot of followers. I've not seen this account before, which I was surprised by. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. I highly recommend checking it out. I mean, they're dinosaurs. Everyone loves dinosaurs. They're universally loved by everyone. So, and he's making these things and they're fantastic. As always, there will be a link because no one knows how to spell an antediluvian, you know, without looking it up first. Yeah, it, so. t- it took me three tries. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, he's yeah, good. It's, it's he's good really stuff. Good. Yeah. When Doug linked us over, I was like, follow. <laughs> this one's staring at me. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. It looks like it's a, it's a mix of sculpted and 3D printed stuff, which is pretty cool. Because he's got a sweet 3D printed Tyrannosaurus skull. So it's kind of hard to go wrong with that. Yeah, who doesn't like a T-Rex, right? Exactly. I'm telling you, everyone loves dinosaurs. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's certainly a page that I'm going to follow. And I, I love dinosaurs since seeing Jurassic Park when I was a kid, so I'm all over it. Have you guys ever seen JB's t-shirt that says, I heart dinosaurs? It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. I'm pretty sure I have one that my wife bought. <laughs> <laughs> he got it, but he was in the mall and somebody was, gave it to him for free. It was calm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so for my social media shout outs, I, ha- I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it goes by Geek Gaming Scenics. Uh, I'll post a link on our page. Really good, really good guy. He used to go by Luke's APS and it's all around kind of terrain. And also he's getting into 3D printing for wargaming. So a lot of cool techniques and, and stuff that he's doing over there with Scenics that are easily applicable to diorama scale modeling. Uh, another social media shout out, I just thought of this, is really two models that have stuck out to me within the last month, really. Um, one is by a good friend that we've talked to before and hopefully we'll get on again is Ilya Yut's fire truck. I think it is absolutely a piece of art. It is gorgeous. Probably one of the best civil subjects I've ever seen. I think we've all shared it in private chat several times. Absolutely fantastic work. So Ilya, you, you hit it out of the park with that one. Yeah. And John, he is actually going to be our guest in episode 31. Oh, snap. Spoiler alert. So that's awesome. So hopefully we can talk to him about that because I think he really pulled it off. Um, and it is a Chernobyl vehicle, I, I'm pretty sure. So that was cool. And then the other one I wanted to mention, I'm pretty sure we shared it on our Facebook page, but I just wanted to bring it up again. It was first posted in Weathered Models, and it's a derelict robot. And it was 3D printed and designed by the modeler, I'm pretty sure. Um, it, the, the modeler goes by Dong Fiong. And I believe he's from Vietnam. It is absolutely stellar. I will post a link on our Facebook page. It has over a hundred, uh, you know, 1,600 likes or interactions on, on Facebook in the weather page alone. It's just really, it just, you look at it and you're like, man, that is a sad looking robot. Not, I mean, just the way it's like got its head tilted down and it's all rusty. And he's like, I got no friends, man. So I, I'll be his friend. It looks pretty sweet. I would certainly buy one if he offered it as a, uh, as a model. But it, it's painted green and just rusted all to heck, really faded. And, and simply another piece of, you know, it's a piece of art. You guys have seen that, right, Scott? Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, sent him a friend request. He's amazing. Early on in the posse, um, we were talking about weathering one time, and TJ described it as uh, weathering a subject. I think it was a Warhammer subject. He said he weathered it to something like it was disgusting in all the right ways. And no, that's, that's really P-38s, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, the that's lightning. right. P-38s, yeah. They're, they're all disgusting in all the right ways. 
this little robot model, that's exactly what it looks like. It's just, it's really well done. I just wanted to give him a shout out. I think, you know, expression and scale like that is, is really, truly unique. And he, he nailed it, everything from the design to the finish. So, you know, with that, Scott, I'm going to kick it over to you for our feature interview. All right. Thanks, John. Well, it's time for our feature interview. TJ and Doug were joined by Jason Champion of Champion Scale Modeling. Jason has an awesome YouTube channel, and he's also an admin of the Spanish Civil War Modeling Group on Facebook, and I think he's the head of a special interest group in the UK on the Spanish Civil War. He's a great modeler. But Doug and TJ, before we go to the interview, Jason, in this interview, Jason was really open with you guys about sharing some personal struggles and how modeling had really helped him to overcome them. Yeah, he did. It's it's really nice to have somebody open up like that because I don't know many people that haven't had some kind of a struggle and some people it's a lot worse for. And it's good to know that, that this hobby and this uh, community can be such a help in giving people that hope and that and that light that they they sometimes need. But he's a lot more uh, he's a lot better at uh, wording, you know, explaining that to us. But uh, you'll hear it in the interview. Yeah, I think, you know, what he touched on uh, probably resonates with a lot of people. I know me me personally, it does. Uh, I, like like Doug was just saying, like, uh, you know, it's you don't really think about it, but it, really it's it's hard to find someone who hasn't had some sort of of mental health. I don't, I don't want to say problems or, or issues, but just mental health challenges in their life. I know I went through it myself. I feel like I got better on my own, but you know, that's not the only way to do it. So yeah, if you know, I think if you need to talk to someone, you know, find someone to talk to. That's one of the things Jason talks about is what really helped him is just finding people to, to talk to and then how, scale modeling can help you. And, and I, I mentioned it, um, in our, in, in the interview, I stopped building when I was having issues or having, you know, difficulties. And when I felt like I was getting better, I was building more. And then I found that it was making me feel better to do that. So then those two were feeding off each other. I was, I was building more. It was making me feel better. That was giving me the confidence to push myself. And then that confidence was making me feel better when, I would look at my work and be like, wow, that's, that's actually turning out the way I wanted it to turn out. And then the external validation of say Scott and other people that I knew that were like, Hey man, this you're, you're doing really good work. And then that made me feel better. Cause I'm like, Oh, I feel like I'm doing better. I guess I am doing better. So that makes me feel better. And that makes me want to do it more when before I was kind of stuck in a, in a spiral where I didn't feel like I was doing good you know, doing well modeling, but that had a lot to do with my external issues that I was working through. And, and then, you know, it was just a perfect cocktail to make me not want to, not want to build models, which I'm glad I, I didn't give up because, you know, as we've said before, building models is like the best hobby in the world. So, I mean, there's nothing better than what we do and making friends through scale models is the best part, you know, Everyone, you know, that we've talked to and everyone here, like, uh, you know, I've considered these guys my friends. It's it's fantastic. And, you know, you don't get that with, with a lot of other hobbies. So, Yeah, it's tough, that one. The, the stuttering uh, kind of proves that. Listening to that, it was quite hard but nice to listen to because it is horrible to go through it. Anxiety, depression, it's horrible. Like, you, like you five here love talking to you, but... That doesn't stop me having a minor panic attack when I know I've got to have a video call with you. 
um, to record this show. It's it's horrible. Uh, people deal with it in different ways and stuff. And there's been plenty of times where I felt the hobby I love so much and the people I love talking to so much doesn't bring me any joy at all. And it's like, well, if the thing I enjoy the most in the world brings me nothing, then what do I do there? And, and, and like Jason and like TJ said, talking to people, it's difficult, but my God, it helps. It is so helpful. Just, just to say what you're thinking and how you're feeling, even if it's to someone you don't know, sometimes it, when it's someone you don't know, it can help because they don't have that emotional connection to the story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, but people have their own ways of getting through it. And however, like whatever that is or however you do it, like well done for doing it. And just talking about it, step one, that's amazing. I don't want to make it a pity party by myself and my voice is starting to go a bit wobbly now. But um, yeah, that's that's all I've got to say on it, really. It's it's a tough subject, but it's a very important one. No, and I completely understand too. You know, I have my own stories with it where, you know, I, I hell, I've been laid off twice and, you know, it's been really tough, you know, going through the interview process and busting your ass and, at the end of the day, you just get ghosted and you're like, man, can I win at anything? But then, you know, scale modeling were that were the wins that I needed in those moments. Um, you know, I had conversations with folks, you know, that I didn't know, very similar to like you said, Ivan, you know, it's removed from, you know, this situation. It, it is bringing joy. It brings happiness and gets your mind off of things and, and really helps you push through those difficult times. And, you know, I truly believe it is one of the best hobbies in the world. And, you know, the friendship and the happiness that comes with it is the most important thing. So yeah, that's just my little story with that. Well, one thing I want to say is um, it takes courage to talk about this stuff. And I think that's the key. And uh, whether it's you guys, and uh, I just want to say to you guys right now, if any of you ever need me, I'm here. I think there's a couple things that we can do as modelers. I think we can make sure to reach out to our buddies, especially if one of them goes quiet on us. And just check in and say, how you doing? And do you need to talk? I think that's a big part of it. The other thing is when we're on social media, I think we want to make sure that we're being positive. And, you know, we might make a, an offhand comment to somebody that might be in a, a fine place to, to take it and it might not do anything. But we might make a comment to somebody that crushes them and really, you know, they might not be in a great place. So, you know, I think those are two easy things to do to support each other. We have a great community and I think we just need to make sure that, you know, that we're there for each other. And I want to acknowledge, um, getting back to the interview, uh, TJ and Doug and Jason for having the courage to talk about it. So, um, without further ado, here's the interview. I think you're going to really enjoy it. to another Plastic Policy Podcast interview. This time, we are joined by Jason Champion from Champion Scale Models on YouTube. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's um, very exciting. Cool, cool. So let's uh, jump right out of the gate and tell us a little about yourself, how long you've been modeling, what you're into. Yeah, well, um, I started traditionally uh, making models with Dad. So on the bed, I remember we, we made... One seven second Spitfire. I've tried to remember what it was. Um, well, I can remember what it was. I've tried to find it in recent uh, times. It's been very tricky. But little clip wing Spitfire, hand painted. Um, got the bug from there, really. I wouldn't say 
dad was really into modeling, but he did encourage it. So uh, any time we could get a model, we did. So uh, I went on with that, and then that progressed with aircraft mainly, anything Airfix being English or British, I should, I should say. And it was, it was anything you could get, so pocket money would go on that. That then progressed as it does tend to happen in the UK, certainly around this, this time. So I imagine we're mid-90s. I did progress onto Warhammer 40,000, which I actually forgot about. So that was quite a big thing. And that moved on into Lord of the Rings figures as well when the films came out. Quite a big, real big fan of Lord of the Rings. You may tell, got the uh, pictures above me. So did the um, Battle Games in Middle-earth when that was out. So went all the way through that. So yeah, with um, the Lord of the Rings stuff, that kind of detail off. Uh, and then I got back into modeling. It was almost, it, they were juggling between themselves. I sort of went into the sort of um, figures, as I called them, kind of around 12, and then rolled into, uh, back into modeling and got into tanks. I don't know how, uh, there was no real push to it. Uh, everyone I knew was into aircraft, but I really went into armor. Um, so started with that, ran on to about, I don't know, about sort of 16, 17, usual stuff. You sort of go to college, girls, uh, drink sort of thing. I got into music as well. So, uh, as much as I'd like to say, uh, sit here and say I was in a band playing lead guitar, <laughs> my music was <laughs> DJing. So I had a set of decks and we were we were into that sort of dance music. So I did that, a bit of music production as a hobby, and then came back into modelling around sort of 25. I um, met my uh, partner, who I'm now going to call Kate from now on, otherwise I'll stumble over partner, girlfriend. All this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, met Kate. She was a crafter. So because of that, we used to go to... Uh, hobby craft, which is, I think you've got something like Hobby Lobby, same sort of thing. Craft shop, sells models and that. It wasn't too long before I started noticing some of the models. And again, funny enough, I thought it was a model, but it wasn't. It was a pack of bloody, um, sorry, <laughs> a pack of uh, tactical space marines, <laughs> of all things. I got one of those, made one of those. And before I knew it, I was up in the attic finding some of the old dragon kits back into armor. And that slowly progressed into aircraft by going to my local club which I, I seeked out. I quite quickly didn't want it to be uh, modeling just for me. So uh, by that, I mean, you know, I made my first couple of models, you know, made a tiger, king tiger, that sort of thing, put them on the shelf and thought, that's not really what I'm doing it for. I wanted a bit more. So it was taking pictures, going on forums, that sort of thing. Flory Models forums and all of that. That was very good. Flory Models site was brilliant for getting me back in. And then uh, went to my local IPMS group and from there progressed into aircraft because those guys were making aircraft. I could see that they were actually not what I thought. So in the 90s, it was always raised panel lines and all that sort of thing. Very difficult to get things going. Coming back to it, obviously 2000s Tamiya kits and that sort of thing, I just gradually moved into aircraft. 172nd FX kit, some of them are built up on the channel. Sort of progressed from there into a nice mix now where I brought armor back. I had a bit of a problem with armor for a while. Almost done, you know, felt like I'd done too much. This all kind of rolls into YouTube then. So that's that's kind of the next large segment, I guess. Um, it's kind of, there's two parts, because uh, the IPMS comes in quite a lot as well. And I know you, you've got IPMS at your end. Is it, it's John that's very heavily into the IPMS, I think, with, with your lot. But it's it's a very good thing. So I went to my club, and that started me, that's the local club. So our clubs, I think, are very different to the way um, Americans do it. And I don't know if that's the same with Europe as well. I think we might be quite specific, whereas ours are like contest is an afterthought. It's about displaying models, and it's it's local clubs. So there's this this effort of the tables come first with the displays. The local clubs. It looks like I'm rolling into IPMS. <laughs> we'll do that first. Um, so when I went to the club, 
it was getting into exhibiting because again I didn't realize quite how much of a role that had in the previous segment because I got I, the break was quite late for me it was like 19 to 25 and um, I was exhibiting quite a lot before so that was something that I did a lot uh, when I was younger I was always um, doing contests and that sort of thing all the junior categories I did win gold once in the junior category and I, I won silver and that was really good and then of course you take that to the next time, um, maybe you were 15 and you've won gold in the junior category and you think it's brilliant, then you're 16, you're in the adults. <laughs> Terrible thing, me being a 16-year-old, I was going to say child, but, you know, uh, very eager, I'm obviously walking around when the judges are doing their thing, listening to what they're pointing out, and it was <laughs> not a good thing to do, really. Of course, you know, the, the medals dry up and you start to think, ah, what am I doing? So we were then exhibiting, and that was with my dad, I would say his friend, but it's my friend as well. So it's, and I'll give him a mention because he'd be listening to this. It's Robert. So us three, we had a little club that was called the Kruken Mixed Scale, I think. And it, it is interesting. My dad wasn't into modelling, like I said. He collected the, the Dragon One Sick figures, which was just bonkers, really, at the time. It was all these, um, <laughs> I don't, it, it was, it was always about the camouflage and that sort of thing. And he had a British commando and um, American troops and stuff, but. <laughs> It was always SS troops and all the the, the, the P-Dot camouflage and all that sort of thing. So you had all these kind of um, action men dolls. It was a real mix of American, Russian, and Dragon did a, a real big range. Um, so that was his part, and he also got some of the tanks as well, and so even a short-run kit. It was a 1.6 SDK said 250, which I convinced him to get a load of um, resin bits for, resin tracks and stuff. Never went anywhere. He had an M5 uh, Stewart as well in 1.6. It was radio control, bought it from America. So he had all of that. Robert used to build um, aircraft and, and sort of thing. Then I would build, build tanks. So that was a display. So we'd go around doing that. So it was a core thing for me because we must have done that from, I was about 16 to 19. I do remember going to the last few and I was kind of pulling away to the side. You know, I, I was really wanting to go early and, and get away from it. I'd sort of done it, I think. So when I come back, that was the sort of thing I wanted to get into. So I did search out my local club, which I think is very important. Anyone should really do that. It's, it's, it's brought me on leaps and bounds, I must admit. Good lot of guys were very um, sort of worried as I was uh, getting into that. But of course, as soon as I turn up, you know, everyone's extremely welcoming. In we go, straight in, half an hour, I'm learning about how to put a metal finish down on a P-51 Mustang that I've been stuck with for two years. So he told me about the sort of basic ways of doing it, you know, putting that down. So that was great. Needless to say, I came out and ruined it the next day, but never <laughs> that went in the bin. But never mind. Uh, you know, you've got to try these things. So that built up things, as I was des describing in um, earlier. And I got into the Airfix kits, 172nd. I really liked them. The Fokkerine Decker and doing rigging. I just thought this was amazing. I showed pictures to my dad and Robert, and you know, they couldn't believe how I'd managed to do the rigging because it was all so new. And half of me now thinks um, you kind of lose that a bit as you progress through, but you don't, you find it in different ways. But it, there is a magical point at the beginning of getting into modeling where everything is just fascinating. And, you, you know, you do one little thing, it just changes everything and it's, it's brilliant. So that was happening and they had uh, photo booths as well. So the DSLR LR cameras and um, a chap in the club take pictures for us, put it up on the website. So that was great. It was all really good. Um, getting that done, and it led on to me building a Airfit Stuka in 172nd scale. So the IPMS thing for me is the club and special interest group, which I don't think a lot of the world has. It might just be a UK thing, and it's an IPMS-affiliated 
program. So it's, it's a SIGS, they're called SIG, Special Interest Group. So I built this Airfix Stuka. My thing was always doing the B schemes, always, this, you know, so if it was a, a, a 109, I'd do sort of like the Romanian one. And this Stuka, it was a Luftwaffe one and a Condor Legion one. I didn't really know what the Condor Legion was, looked it up. It was in Spain, 1937. I thought, great, that's brilliant. Brought it to the club. And our club actually has a couple of SIGs in it, or did, a couple of guys who run different special interest groups. So they're very keen on it, very pushing the, the idea of it. And one of them mentioned uh, that would be good. There'd be, a, you know, probably be a special interest group in it. The next meeting, couple uh, a month later, he comes back and says, I looked it up and, you know, there wasn't one. So <laughs> uh, long story short, I ended up starting my own special interest group, and that was for the Spanish Civil War. Now, I'd only built this one Stuka. I don't know anything about the Spanish Civil War. And now I'm running a special interest group. I, I just kind of, I do this quite often with things. YouTube is the same. I just think, let's give it a go. Jump in head first. But I don't just do that and think, you know, we'll do it sort of half-assed, as it were. I then start learning about the subject. And I think at, at the time I was looking for um, a type of aircraft, I guess, um, and I was in two two minds. I was going to do late war Luftwaffe jets <laughs> or the Spanish Civil War. I'm glad I chose the Spanish Civil War. There's not many wearaboos or anything like that in, um, in the Spanish Civil War. And it's, it's pretty much everyone's got an interest. You can't really tread on anyone's toes. There's no swastikas, none of that sort of thing. So it's it's pretty good. So I thought, when you start learning about the Spanish Civil War, do, do you guys know anything about it at all? Yeah, so you've got an idea. Yeah, so it's got a real, it's surprising how in society it is, in, in daily life. You know, it, as I've grown up, there has been things that I know that have come directly from the result of the Spanish Civil War. I mean, for me, it was like the song Manic Street Preachers. Um, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. That is a poster that was put up in Madrid uh, for the bombing of Madrid that, that killed, you know, innocent people like it does. So there's all these sort of things where it, where it filters in. And it was very interesting. So I started exploring that. And of course, the aircraft side, there's over 350 different types of aircraft used during the conflict. Uh, and that's because of the way it broke down. You know, there was a lot of um, buying in and importing from both sides. You've got the nationalists and the Republicans. And um, I always thought, just glancing at it, you know, you've got the rebels trying to topple down. You've, I always thought it was the Republicans, but actually the Republicans were the government that was tried to be overthrown in the military coup. So uh, that's what it was like. Very interesting. There's a ground war. There's an air war. So I went headfirst into that, really. Took it seriously. And I thought, if we're going to do that, I started um, making some... For me, they're still the best builds I've ever done. The thing with the Spanish Civil War is, which I learned very quickly, is unless you're doing a BF-109 E3 or E1, it's not as simple as it looks. So you, you, you can look at it, you see the Panzer one was there. You can see that the, you know, the German trailer, for instance, was taking it around the SDAH-115 that Daz Work have now released. I think brilliant. Of course, it wasn't that type. It was an early type because the way it was designed, that, that everything that got sent to Spain was just sort of dog ends. Unless it was the Emmels or it was the aircraft were actually sent, were, were state-of-the-art by the Germans and the Italians. And really, the, the Soviets, that's the three powers. For those who don't know, I'll just give a little overview. It's, it's kind of like a proxy war fought in Spain, unfortunately. After about <laughs> really a week, the Germans are already getting involved, moving the African army, which was the, the big Spanish army that was actually part of the, of the, the military coup. That was stuck in Morocco, so they couldn't get across. So Hitler sends JU-52s over for Franco, starts airlifting them over. So one of the first airlifts in, in history, as far as I know. And then the Italians start getting involved with Mussolini, and it takes on this fascist versus 
communist idea. Which isn't, I mean, if you read books from the time, you've got people saying they're sat in cafes and all of a sudden we're a communist. They don't know what it means. They're just calling themselves it, and, and that's what it is. You've got Reds and the Nationalists. So when the German aircraft come in, it's very interesting. Um, it's all state-of-the-art stuff because they're doing technical things because they are obviously building up to a European war. So they're using this. You know, the Stukas are going in. They're not, they're not bombing places for no reason. They're doing it and measuring it. You know, they, they know what's happening. So it is a bit brutal when you start to look into it. But because of that, you get state-of-the-art Stukas, the ones that are in Poland and Fra- the Battle of France as well. So you've got very good kits of those. Although the B1 actually isn't that easy to get hold of. And then you've got 109s. So the, the, the Messerschmitt 109 for me, BF-109, is I hate. I don't want to say my favourite aircraft. The Spitfire and the 109 very much lead the way. But you know, I've built some really unusual aircraft. So I'm not, it's not all Spitfires and 109s. But it is very interesting. And in Spain, you've got the early 109s coming through. So you've got all the prototypes make it one, well, more or less make it there, which is really unusual. And they're getting action. You know, this is why the aircraft developed so quickly because it's, it's actually being tested in combat as early as 1936 which is unbelievable, really. Um, so to get models of these, leading back, I've gone digressed a little bit. So to lead back to the models I've done, very quick, I thought I've got to do one of these early 109s. And it's a big table to fill. Again, didn't do anything by halves. Got a 12-foot table. That's a lot to fill. I do my placards, which <laughs> have who it's by. And uh, when my friend comes around, <laughs> looks at it, and it's like, if there's 30 models, there's 29 that say, by Jason Champion. You just think, well, what's the point of putting that on? So it, was, it was all me, but I didn't mind that. It was great. It was my modelling um, subject for a couple of years. And the Alley Cat resin conversion in one thirty second scale, which was an amazing thing to exist anyway, for a BF109D. Uh, so for anyone who knows the 109, if you know the Emil, which is the Battle of Britain one, it's very sleek, runs down that you you know iconic sort of uh, cowling, and then it moves on to the F and the Gustav, and it's nice and curved. Now, the early ones have a chin, and it doesn't look right, but it looks right for the time. A lot of aircraft in the 30s look like this, but it's a very iconic-looking thing. So I started with that. It was way too much. You know, I hadn't even built a 132nd aircraft, and I jumped straight in with a resin conversion, which is a complete front end of an aircraft, with an Edouard 109 uh, 132nd E1, which isn't an easy kit to build in the first place. So that was a nightmare. And um, to make matters worse, to finish up, that was only one corner. So I also, again, I cannot believe this aircraft exists in one second scale. The Stuka A, the Anton. I mean, there wasn't really even 30 of those built, from what I can understand. Uh, but needless to say, we've got it as a state-of-the-art kit in one second scale. It's pretty accurate. Only a few things you've got to do. So um, I built those two together over a couple of years, I think, and they they formed the centerpiece of my display. So I was really happy with that. They are up on the channel, and I'm really proud of them. And that's the sort of thing that this interest sort of leads to. So that all came just by looking at my local club on the internet and going that one night. If I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be sitting here now, you see. So it's, 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 it's amazing at how that opens up. And that is all a credit goes back to the IPMS. Now, a lot of people in England, anyway, do sort of have this idea of the IPMS and clubs and how there's a lot going around now about sort of gatekeeping and that sort of thing. Now the hobby is, my personal view is the hobby is what you make it and it's there to be had. And for me, I've gone to the club as the quiet little lad who sits in the corner very quickly. This does happen to me. I go in, I can be very nervous, very quiet. Half an hour into it, I start hearing things that I don't agree with. I'm, you know, <laughs> sort of talking over people and stuff. 
that's probably what led to me now being the chairman of my club as well. So that has happened. We've had a change around. So that is a big part of my modelling. Um, however, it hasn't been because obviously COVID hit um, and we haven't had a meeting since March 2020. So it has been, we've done Zoom meetings and stuff, which has been a bit tricky. It's, it's okay, but you, you can't do a lot. There isn't really a lot you can do other than that, I don't think. So hopefully that's about to change. Looks like things are opening up now. That uh, may be a bit long-winded and a bit rambly, but that is that is how it sort of moulded me into the next phase. So YouTube sort of comes out of the middle of this. It comes out as a result of the, the SIG the special interest group. Now, um, something else, one last bit, I've got an IPMS kind of thing to talk about. You've obviously got Telford, so that's our big thing. I know you've got the Nationals coming up. Telford, for me, that was, a, again, I would have never gone to that if it wasn't for the club. Turn up to the club, I think, so Telford is in November. I think I went to the club in August. They're talking about this place called Telford, and I, I'm leaving, I'm Googling Telford, and I'm thinking, what, you know, it's just this town in the middle of England. I'm thinking, what's going on here? Then we, they start talking about what they're doing, and the fact that there's going to be a show. So okay, well, I think well, it's a long way to go for a model show, but I'm sure it'll be okay. <laughs> you get there, and you, it takes a long time to get over what it is you see. It is absolutely huge, and I, it, one room would be amazing. There's two rooms that are this size, and then there's another room that's half the size, and then you've got the competition that's upstairs. It's just unbelievable how big that was. So that was another thing that came out of the club. We went up as a club. We sort of stayed in the same areas, went out for, for a meal and a drink and stuff. So it's a brilliant thing that came out, and it's all sort of character building. I saw all of the local clubs and the local SIGs and that sort of thing, and you go up in the competition room, it just blows your mind. So that was a thing that started then. I think my first one was... 2017 and then I've gone every year since hoping to go this year but I won't be exhibiting but I've been exhibiting every year for that and um, I take Kate up with me as well which um, so we have a good time you know we, we get a bit of a sort of nicer hotel have it as a weekend break not to do a, a, her a disservice but there is a large shopping center up there as well she just goes shopping but it's around Christmas so she can get all that sorted so she doesn't have to sit with me but it is it was great she does she sits on the table she puts up with a lot and people come over and say yo so you interested in Spain and she goes no <laughs> yeah, it does, but it's um uh, she listens anyway you know she just is quite dry it's all, all, all funny but yeah so it's, it's a really great thing that, that I cannot, I don't want to come on there as an ambassador for the IPMS, but what it offers is it, it, it's, it can be hard to see. You've got to peel back the layers. Uh, if you go there, some, now some clubs are very heavy on competition and very heavy on making sure that the, the kit needs to be brilliant. If you take something in, it's a brush painted airfix kit that you stuck together the first thing you bought Saturday and it was ready by Saturday evening. I don't know how you get on. You know, we'd be fine with that sort of thing. So you've got to sort of, you know, there's always local clubs and there's always, there's not always just one in the same area. So you can always move around. Like in, we're in Somerset. So we've got two. It's not a huge county. We've got North Somerset and I'm in South Somerset. So you can move around. And of course, if you're in South Dorset, <laughs> I'm going to think what this means, but you can, you know, it, it's not that far. We're only sort of half an hour, 45 minutes away. So it is surprising how many are dotted around the UK. So it's well worth checking out. And I think it brings, Quite a bit, to be honest, a surprising amount. So that's where a lot of my early building of my hobby came from, because we've got a lot of guys. We've got guys who are happy to brush paint, uh, build out the box. We've got guys who scratch build 
out of wood, 30, you know, 30s aircraft that they bring in. Everyone knows. <laughs> this is a ridiculous thing. Everyone knows what it is. I got no idea what these aircraft are. <laughs> they're all like, um, you know, a lot of them are sort of, we've got Westlands, uh, which built Spitfires in World War Two and builds helicopters all the way through now. We've got, uh, you know, the Westland Whirlwind, all those sort of aircraft. We've got that in the town where a lot of these guys come from. A lot of them have worked there. We've got the Fleet Air Arm as well, which is Yeovilton, which has obviously any fleet-based aircraft. They bring these in. They all love it. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I'm looking at it. I'm just like, yeah. But, you know, that's great. And um, I don't need to know. That's fine. I can look at the models. And they have a great time. It's not, you know, that's what it's about. It's, it's not about any one person. Absolutely fantastic. I think our club's one of the one of the best, but I would say that because I'm the chairman. So <laughs> Yeah, you might be a little bit biased. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't think so. That's okay. So I guess that moves us on to YouTube then. This is the sort of last segment of, of my big start. So YouTube came out of the Spanish Civil War Special Interest Group. Now, from my point of view, I see I may say dive slightly divisive things here because I've got a view on YouTube that I think, you know, it's my personal view, so it's fine. It's, it's how I feel about it. Now, when I started on YouTube, there was, there was no big channels apart from Plasma. The king, the god that is Plasma. And he was doing things then, you know, riveting 172nd Airfix kit. Unbelievable. I still think he's the god. For me personally, I think he is, it's his channel, Scale Modeling, but he is out there on his own as far as channels, I think. You know, he's, he's going way on to sort of half a million subscribers and the stuff he does, the production levels, it's, it's not really, it's not really techniques. It's not really building a model. It's more of a, watching a masterpiece sort of thing. The whole thing is scripted. So I think he's, he's brilliant. And he was like that at the beginning. Production values have greatly come up, but, you know, he's really good. Then the, the most guys that were around, you know, there's a lot of the big hitters like Panzermeister was there, you know, all, all of these guys. You know, Alex Models was a, was a big one. Alex Modeling, I think it is, uh, was a big one then. Uh, and they were all sort of branching off of community-based channels. And by that, I mean, they're still there. There's still a big community on YouTube. That's where I started. And I feel, I've been thinking about this, I feel like I've moved away from it. But as I sit and think about it, I don't think I have, actually. I, I feel like I have. I feel disconnected from it, I suppose. But I still do very community-based stuff. So I'm still happy to sit there and throw a video up about whatever. I've just done a video tonight while we were waiting, just talking about kits I got on the bench. And I think that's that's what I like about my channel. It, as much as I can do build videos, and I, I may get into weekly videos just about builds and tips and that sort of thing. You know, I can very quickly intersperse that with just turning the camera on and talking. And that's what I like. That's what I get from, from YouTube. So I started off as part of that. And for me, you know, getting to 100 subs would have been amazing. A 1,000 was, you know, a dream. And if you got to 10,000, well, you know, give up. That's great. You've, you've done it. You know, that's brilliant. And that really was the dream. And for me at that moment, it was making models again. That was, that was the one that got me in there, Gary Bottoms. I've met these guys. I meet them at Telford. We've got a YouTube meetup. <laughs> I don't tell them that when I meet them because it's a bit awkward. But, you know, these guys started and there was a lot of small channels and they're, they're still there. And I, see, this is the other thing. So it's saying a small channel kind of does it a disservice because it's very easy to look at YouTube and base channels on subscriber count, which is when I say, now I'm going to put brackets around meaningless. <laughs> it means the world to have you know, a hundred subscribers, but you can't judge a channel on the subscriber count. You know, it's all about the content and what they're building. You've got guys who are building massive communities. They're doing hangouts all the time and just, you know, they're happy just circulating in their little community. And that's brilliant. So there's tons of that in scale modeling. It's not all about just the, you know, the massive build videos and tip videos. And I kind of float between the two. I guess I must admit I've, I've kind of pulled into 
of build videos. And I like the idea of series, making series, which I shouldn't because I can never keep it up. But, you know, I can get into weekly videos for, for a bit. And the thing I've got at the minute is the beginner's guide to armor modeling, which is something I started last year, which I'm, I'm reasonably proud with the first few videos. I think I've kind of lost my way through it, although I think people, everyone seems to be very happy with them. What I wanted to do with it was to try, and this is what I think I've done, because I get the messages, and that, that's, that's all I really wanted, is um, I was seeing on, on Facebook, you'd get someone who's gone to Hobbycraft, and there's a reason these kits are there. You know, you buy the Tamiya Pant for A, the Tamiya Panzer 4D, what's the other classic? I suppose the, the Flak 88 and the Panzer 2 F. Now, these kits were made in the 70s. They've got all of the st- gubbins in them to make them radio control. There is a reason why they're still being sold. It's because they are massive selling kits for Tamiya. They get people in the hobby. You can buy a Panzer II with five figures for ten less than £10 in the UK. Now, guys are buying these kits. That's how they're starting to get going. And I've seen people put up on Facebook, you know, I bought this Panzer II. And first comment is, you know, don't build it. It's inaccurate. I built this, I got this Panther A. I really want it. Oh, it has to have Zimmer. The turret's wrong. It's missing a road wheel. No one cares about that if it's the first model. You'll get on and build it. Get the tracks together. Get the turret on. Let's, let's get it done. So that was the idea of, of my beginner's guide. Um, and I wanted to really just show people that you can just take a kit through the box. It's not going to be an award winning kit, but you're going to be, you're going to be proud of it. And then from there, you can move on. So that was what I wanted to do there. I think I've done it. Not that it's over. There's, I've got a whole load of videos I've got to, um, edit. I'm getting lost into a Panzer IV effort the minute which was meant to be a short build and i think i started it in november <laughs> so that's going on some time but um it, you know i just let the let the the kits kind of guide me i suppose but with youtube i like i like the freedom of it I, I like the fact that i control it i don't have to worry about anyone else and i can put stuff up on there and you get great comments i love reading through the comments i think it's a really brilliant thing it's not as um much of a driving force in my hobby as it may be for some people. I think some YouTube channels probably build for YouTube. I like the subject to drive what I'm building. I've got a ridiculous stash. I looked at it. I moved it around yesterday. It's just absurd what's in there. The amount of kits is just unbelievable. I don't know what I'm thinking. I'd like to think I've got a lot of life left, but even so, I'm starting to worry about getting through them all. <laughs> so I can't throw everything into every every build, and I can't make every build video you know, the absolute best there is. So for me, I like to just throw, throw, throw at it what it is. You know, you get an out-of-the-box build, you get a super detailed build, you get a build that's been weathered to hell and back, you get one that's only had three products. It's like what you were saying, I think, TJ, the, uh, in the last podcast I listened to, just limiting your color palette mm-hmm. and how that can really control what it is you you have and and the effect you get, and you can get through it. And that's that's the key to my channel, is trying to show people that you can get through a model. It helps me as well. And if we start, you know, buying five photo etch, metal tracks, metal gun barrel, then we're not going to get through it. It's going to go on the shelf and it's going to be stuck. Not to say you can't do that. I mean, for me, I could not spend a year building one model. It would drive me up the wall. It would never get done. But some people like that. And that's brilliant. And I, you know, I got to cater for everything on the channel, I think. And I like to think I do that. I think a lot of the guys I hope still there. The core guys that came on for the Spanish Civil War content, there was a lot of them. They're, you know, they're the ones that got me to a thousand subscribers. I hope they're all still there. That stuff is coming. I can't neglect the aircraft. You know, I've gone a bit heavy on the armor. I, I like to mix it up on the armor as well. And one thing I should say is the key thing, <laughs> which always gets me going for YouTube, is the fact that I can put up a kit. I've got a, a resin 148 by Ka- Kyara, uh, Martinside Buzzard. 
which I don't. Do either of you know what that aircraft is? Just out of interest, I do not. You're not like it's not a popular aircraft. It's not one that did a lot. It was in the First World War, but it ain't it ain't a big hitter. You know, we're not talking about Sopwith Camel here. Now I've put a review of that up on the channel. So if anyone like me is looking on Hannans and wondering what on earth is inside that kit, because you can't find pictures of it anywhere. Well, if you Google it, my video will pop up and you can watch it. And I just love the fact that I can do that sort of thing. And that's, you know, that's never going to stop. You, you know, it may dry up for, you know, six months or whatever, but it, <laughs> there's always a chance you're going to get something really, really unusual. And I know the guys like it because as soon as I put it up, you get the comments saying, you know, this is the sort of thing we like. And then they always want you to build it, which is, um, you know, putting the review up is one thing. I'm not <laughs> getting that resin biplane now. I don't know if I'm going to build that just yet, but there you go. But uh, yeah, I like to. It hopefully, is a, a good amount of diversity there. Yeah. Uh, so I want to I want to circle back briefly to your your intro to armor building series because I I really like that. Great. great. Obviously, I'm not not to toot my own horn, but like I know how to build a tank, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been I've been doing it for a little while, but I've I mentioned before that I like I like to watch I like to watch videos even if even if I don't think I could really get anything from it, just because I enjoy it. Right. It's like watching anything you enjoy. I really appreciate that series and I appreciate the reason why you do it. As you just explained, like there's something to taking an older kit that's basic or kind of gets crapped on nowadays for not being the best thing ever and just putting it together and building it and having fun because that's what this is pretty much all about. And I think JB mentioned something in our last episode. It's like, you know, not every build is an award winner. Most builds aren't. Exactly. Even guys that are these master builders, you think everything they build is going to win first place at every contest they go to? I'm like, no, that's just not the reality of the world we live in. Just thank you. I, I really enjoy those videos. No, uh, it, that's one of the things. I mean, I'm seeing it a lot around in the hobby at the minute that there's always this thing about defining what you are. Are you an assembler? Are you uh, Yeah, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are. Just build the kit. Have fun. Be in modeling. Just be in the environment. <laughs> there's there's so much to have in this hobby. It's almost impossible to explain, I think, to someone who's not in the hobby and not and 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 to actually people who who aren't who are just on the edge, you know, thinking about dipping into it. Uh, they're all the same. Any of these type of hobbies. I mean, I would say scale modeling uh, encompasses things like Warhammer, like gaming. You know, anything that's on a sprue, you have to build up that sort of thing. Sci-fi, all of that. It's all scale modeling, and there's so much to be had in the little facets of it. It's very easy to be put off. When it, Facebook's the best and worst thing that's happened to modeling, uh, I think. When we have forums, you could tell, you know, there's 10 comments and one comment is, as they call it, I hate this term, but a rivet counter, as, as they would be called then. And you could see it and it would stand out a mile off. Whereas now, you know, there's there's a fine line between, it's not it's not criticizing, no, none of that comes into it. There's a fine line by saying that a kit, a, a, a tank should have this. But a model doesn't need to have it. You know, okay, the tool clamps aren't right. You know, who cares if the tool clamps are right on a 135th model if you don't want them to be? But if you want them to be, you know where to look for that information. That's fine. But if someone's done it, you don't need to tell them it's wrong. I don't know whether that happens. I'm just using that as an example. You know, your tool clamps on German vehicles. You know, camouflage is another one, isn't it? You know, it's just unbelievable. It, it, just, just crack on and build it. That's what I would say. Um, I do try, I do get carried away, I think, in some of the, the videos where um, I like to nail into the colour, but I'd like to, I, I hope, I do try to explain all the way through. I mean, I did, um, a, a classic example is the Crusader review, I just, uh, Cromwell, sorry, British Tank, I should know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the Cromwell. <laughs> so I did a quick video just saying that, look, you know, the Airfix Cromwell's out. It's a brilliant kit. However, 
you know, the wheels are wrong. The There aren't some holes and bolts drilled on the pistol ports. But if you don't care about that, it's a great kit. Buy it, build it. It's 22 quid. You know, you've got a Cromwell. It's brilliant. So I hope that people realize that when I go into a kit, I'm doing it for certain people. But obviously the caveat is if you don't care about that, just build it anyway. Right. And I think that's got to be, you know, we've got to keep coming back to that, that the hobby is what people make of it. It's not what people tell you it is. No one has the right to tell you what the hobby is. You know, that's what a hobby is, isn't it? Absolutely. And I will say it's it's very disappointing that the road wheels on that Cromwell are not correct. Utterly disappointing. When I watched your video on that because I I don't know if if I've mentioned this or if you know this about me. I'm a huge British armor fan. I love really? I love British armor. Oh, I'll, we're back to that. Yeah, go on. And I like I like Cromwells, and I play Flames of War, the 50 millimeter um, tabletop game. Yeah, yeah. And one one of my many armies, I have like three Brit- three or four British armies. One of them is all Cromwells from the South Armored <laughs> Division in Normandy. And uh, I love Cromwells. I think they're awesome tanks. And I saw your video. I was like, man, you, you gotta be kidding me. Like <laughs> a simple thing like that. Like, and I'm all, I'm not one that get, really gets bogged down in every detail has to be accurate, but like, that's a pretty basic thing to not get right on, on, on an iconic tank. That is. Airfix have no leg to stand on. They've got, <laughs> they've got eight bolts on the painting scheme. They've got eight bolts on their 172nd kit. They've even got the pistol port drilled bolts on their 172nd kit. What are they thinking? The only conclusion I can come to is the one I came to is that they had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Because they got all of this information. I mean, Bovington's half an hour down the road for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm the pictures. It's not difficult, you know? Yeah. Oh, dear. But, you know, there you go. It is what it is, I suppose. When we were kind of chatting before we started recording, and I think you and I did chat about this in messages on on instagram that you had mentioned the episode we did which seems like forever ago about mental health in the hobby and how the hobby is a good way to make you healthier mentally and that was a big part of how we started this podcast and i know it's important to me and i and it's like a a, for me personally it's it can be both Uh, you know the the better I feel, the more I want to model. And then the more I model, the better I feel. So they kind of feed off each other. And you you had a similar idea, to, for lack of a better term, um, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, so this is something that, that people, I don't think anyone will know about in the wider hobby. I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the channel. But I have had some real bad suffering with anxiety uh, to the point where it was affecting everything. Um, and I had to get a handle on it. I will tell you now that I, I am, as far as I know, I'm over it. I haven't really had any massive issues for about a year, but it really started affecting me 2000. Well, it goes back a long way. This might be a long rambling talk, but I think it would be good for people who are maybe suffering from it. I just want to give a couple of guys a shout out, and this is key to it because we're going to come back to them so I can then just name them. So there's there's two chaps that I've met in this hobby who are as into modeling as I am. And I'm, I know because we're in a WhatsApp group and we talk every day. I'll wake up six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> There'll be pictures of Messerschmitts that we're talking about, you know, what's wrong with this tailwheel. I'll wake up, you know, I'll be going to bed at 11 o'clock and there's still messages. There's, there's three of us. So there's always two tend to be talking. And those two have been very instrumental in helping one side of it. And that's how the hobby helps. So that is um, Patrick Bryan, who's uh, affectionately known as Paddy. He's a great chap, really knows about his, um, his 109s as well as early Brit aircraft. 
And um, Tim Headworth as well, who's known for British Aviation and Scale on Facebook, and Tim Scale Modeling. So that's the two guys we're talking about. I'll refer to them as Paddy and Tim. So anxiety for me came on out of nowhere. And it's the sort of thing I would have said, if someone was anxious, I wouldn't have said, you know, just get over it. You know, that's the best piece of advice. And I've been waiting 14 years for someone to tell me just to get over it. You know, it, it doesn't help, but I, I wouldn't have understood it. And this is the key thing as well with modeling is I've got lots of friends, lots of friends in, in WhatsApp groups, friends I've grown up with. But to talk, I, I wouldn't talk to them about anxiety because they wouldn't understand it because they've not gone through it. You know, I can say, oh, I'm a little bit anxious or I'm, I'm sat down quietly, you know, not doing much. Maybe talk about, you know, just shoot the breeze, what's been going on, 15 minutes and it's over. So you haven't really got an escape there. You know, it's not enough to help you help you out. So that will come back later on that as to how it helps. So the anxiety got me. I was kind of the life of the party <laughs> when we were meeting my friends. You know, they'd have house parties all the time. You know, not uh, crazy ones, you know, all, all you know, partners coming around, we'll all have a good time, right? And, you know, you have a few drinks, you start dancing, that sort of thing. I was always in the middle, no problem. All of a sudden, for some reason, instead of being in the middle, I've stood by the side and I couldn't go and join in. I couldn't really help. I didn't know what I felt like. I just, this is all it comes back to is I felt unsettled. You know, I would say that I'd, I would feel just not quite right. I wouldn't really feel anything physically. I just didn't feel right. And this went on for a little bit and it came to a head. Uh, me and Kate were going to watch a film and it'd been built up. You know, we were going to watch a film. This is great. Now, these are things you don't realize you've got to think about um, until you get anxiety. <laughs> we went and had a, a big pizza and a beer, waiting for the film to start. So I'm, I, I'm sort of feeling quite full, you know, I feel a little bit. <laughs> we're sitting middle of the aisle, people all around us, big film, and it starts. And I'm just in there and I'm thinking, I don't feel right. It's not like I felt sick. It's not like I felt anything like that. I just felt like, you know, like it was like a, think of it like something sort of creeping up in you like that. And it gets to the top and it wants to blow like that. I was sat there. <laughs> it was getting more and more and more. And it was getting this really intense bit of the film. And I thought, that's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And then this intense film was a bit was about to happen that I knew was coming. I just shot straight up, walked out the um, aisle, not popcorn and everything went everywhere. Kate was looking, thinking, what on earth is going on here? And I, I had a panic attack. And that's what the anxiety led to. I went down into the toilet, was panting, came back up, sort of whispering to Kate, I need to go back to the car. As soon as I got the keys in my hand, because she had the keys, I was fine. Sat there for the rest of the film. And it, it's this thing. This is what mine kept coming back to. It was having the control. So I wouldn't have been able to do something like this. From then on, anxiety was set in for me from that point. It would come on more and more regularly. And it was the thing of, we live in a flat, so we haven't got outside space. So I would start feeling a bit sort of twitchy, I would always call it. I'd, I'd never say how I actually felt. It's like, because you give it too much respect, this is the trouble. You know, you can't use the word anxiety. You can't say how you feel, because if you say it, you know, it makes it worse. So you start using these words to describe it or doing these things. It's so silly, really, when you're in it. But you you, you can't, you know, you can't see this. It's just how it, how it goes. It takes a hold. And, and for me, it attacks the weakest point. So for me, I was always very confident. I could, um, if we went up to London, into the Tube, it's always packed. I'd jump straight on there, stand in the middle, no problem. Go into a cinema, sit in the middle of a aisle, fine. Going on a plane, didn't like planes, but I could sit anywhere, it was fine. As soon as anxiety sort of got in, I had to sit by the aisle, I had to know where the exits were, I had to think about, you know, if I want to get up. They never have to get up, but it's if you want to, and you can't, that's when it starts for me. This then got really, really bad, and it started affecting my work. And my work for me, I'm very lucky, I've got my own business. I've run my own business for nine years. 
It's a, a blissful job. I complain about it. It is stressful, but it's most people's idea of what they would do on a weekend off. You know, I, I've got a plant nursery. It's a very large nursery, grow plants, work with my family. You know, what's not to like? You know, it, it is great, but it's running a business. There's bills to pay. There's a lot of things to keep on top of. Now, I was always very confident. That stayed all the way through. But work, if I felt ill and I go into work, you know, I'd be on it. It's no problem. I, it would go. And then anxiety started creeping in. It started creeping in when I was at work. And I would be speaking to customers, really important customers, you know, spend you know, a lot of money. And I'd have to walk off and go and find dad and say, can you just, you know, deal with them? And I, goes, I said, and I'm, I don't know what I'm doing it for. I'm just stood around the corner, you know, deep breathing. You can't control it. You can't stop it. And when it got to that point, I had to, I had to sort it. Now, how I started doing that was with this WhatsApp group was, was key. Now, unbeknown to me, Paddy knows all about it. He's had issues before and you could talk to someone about it. And all of a sudden it wasn't just talking and then they're busy. You know, it's, I could talk to him or Tim about it, or I could say, look, I'm not feeling great, but don't worry about it. And we start talking about Spitfires, you know, the different types of Mark One Spitfires. Before you know it, you're 45 minutes in, you forgot what you're worried about. And it was really, really good. And, and that comes from the fact of modeling. You know, this is the depth of it. You might be talking about history, but we're, we're going into what is the best kit. You know, oh, the Tamiya Spitfire Mark One has these parts, but the Edward Mark 1A has these parts, so you could cross-kit it and make this really early prototype. These sort of things is how you get through it. Also, going into the modeling room, it's very crucial for me. I need to do, well, I don't need to, but I like doing an hour a night because when I go in there, it is to model. And it, it it's like I close the door and it's it's all gone. It's all stopped. Work stopped. Everything stopped. And it was a good way to break it. And it started breaking it down. You see people are suffering with it as well in the hobby. And you see how they're sort of talking about it. It really helped. It really helped to get through. It, it helped to manage it. It's not how I got over it. I don't, you know, modeling is, let's, let's not, you know, let's cut to the chase. Modeling is not going to get you over anxiety, but it really can help. But it can also be isolating. And, you know, I would really, you know, what, what we've got, us three in this WhatsApp group, we've been in it uh, a couple of years now. We're mods of our own. Or we've all got different Facebook groups. We're all mods in it as well, so we can keep a continuity across what we do. We all see the same thing. Uh, Tim's got a YouTube channel as well, so we talk about that as well. It's it's a really great thing, and it's got me back on the sort of straight and narrow, as it were. It's a really good thing to talk about. I mean, you know, to give you an example that you won't get this from anyone else. I don't think you get it from anyone else uh, other than Paddy. Actually, it's ridiculous. I woke up, I, I get this thing of waking up and um, I couldn't go back to sleep. So it was like half three in the morning and I'd feel anxious. So I go in the living room, I sit down, get my phone up and WhatsApp was there. And I just sent a text just more so we could see in the morning that I was up at three in the morning. I was just saying, yeah, not feeling that good. And Paddy fires back going, yeah, I'm sat up too. It's half three in the morning. We're talking about Messerschmitts. It's unbelievable. But that's the sort of thing you can possibly get. You know, it's, I don't know how these things work, but it, it all helps. It's really good. I've seen, uh, so uh, JB's one of your presenters, isn't he? I've seen mm -hmm. that he does the sort of things where you can use the hobby. I've seen him put posts up where he says he's had a hard day at work, so he's in the, in, in the hobby, uh, in, in, gone to the model shop and he bought a model. That sort of thing helps as well. I mean, you don't go and build a stash, but it's like a reward. You know, you go, I've got for a really tough thing. You know, I feel crap. I'm going to go and buy that model that I've for a while, you know, and um, or just start one. Now, this is where, you know, there can be a, a, an, another problem with the anxiety thing is also did actually affect me is going on Facebook groups. When I was at my lowest, we were up in Scotland, very isolated. We were up in Scotland for a bit 
Um, lovely trip, you know, we saw like uh, Edinburgh and all the sort of Harry Potter stuff and all that. But I'd be sat in the cabin <laughs> and I'd, um, I'd put something up about uh, Spanish Civil War Messerschmitts and this guy was sort of trolling me. And it really affected me. It really did. I was telling Paddy, he sort of came in and helped and it, and it, and it evened itself out. But you know, when you're really low, you've got to remember if, you know, if you're going on just a YouTube channel and you just go, oh, that's crap, that's fine. But someone's going to read that. You know, and it's going to affect someone. Now, not to say that bad, I, I, I just fight back, you know, it's fine. Have fun with it. You just got to have fun with it. But sometimes, you know, we all have our downtime, times when we're a bit down and those sort of things can affect it. So it is, uh, I've left Facebook groups in this period because I just couldn't deal with the hassle, didn't want to bother with it. I was getting a lot, <laughs> for some reason, starting off the, the, the Spanish stuff, I was getting a lot of trouble because, of course, it's a Spanish civil war. Spaniards feel you know, very strongly about it. So some British lad coming on and painting up a measurement that's not the right colour, some of them don't like it. So I started my own group. You know, that's a safe place. I've got the group. It's my safe place. That's where we do it. And I look after the sort of flock, as it were, and just let it carry on. And that's fine. That's what I started to do. I started to recede from commenting on Facebook because you get in, it's very easy to get embroiled into arguments. And I don't need that sort of hassle, you know, especially when you've been going through things like this. With, with the anxiety, it was, I was able to sort of beat it through that and really get it back to a manageable level. So it peaked. It was really bad. Modeling was a definite way of getting me back on the straight and narrow. You know, you find things that you like. Like I said, I, I like Lord of the Rings. If I'm feeling, if, you know, if I'm having a borderline panic attack, put Lord of the Rings on. You know, I'm starting to quote Aragorn and everything's fine. That's <laughs> not a problem. You see Gandalf, everything's great. You know, you've got to find those sort of things that help. Obviously, you know, it's not all modeling. Um, and sometimes modeling can go against you if you've got a project that you don't like and it all filters back. You'll see it start to make sense now. All the things that, that drive me, it needs to be a hobby that is there for the sake of being a hobby. And too, it's too easy to get caught up in it having to be the best, having to be this, that and everything else. It can be whatever you want it to be. And you need to make it what you want it to be because that's how you can use it to help you. And that's that's what you need to do. And that's what I did. I'm happy to say, like I said, now I am over it as it were my only advice for that unfortunately it's not not ideal i can't um, give too much advice uh, the thing that got me over it is the thing that probably gave a lot of people anxiety is the actual onset of covid believe it or not because i sat down the prime minister said his thing and um i was in seven months of work sort of i don't know seven days a week 12 hour days and um i didn't have time to be anxious is it i'd already done the work to getting better and then i jumped into that all of the problems that were an issue at work before were gone. I was very isolated. I was on my own. I was managing to sort out how my business works. So I managed to unpack that as well. And it's fine. I, you know, if I get a problem now, it's um, 15 minutes at the most, 10 minutes maybe coming on like this. You know, I would have got anxious for days for this. All I got was, you know, a bit of butterflies like you should, a bit of nerves. That's fine. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not all, it's not overpowering. And that's the message I'd like to get across. Paddy said this to me when he suffered. He, I don't see. I don't know what he specifically had, but I know he had. He knows what anxiety is like. He said, it, "You'll get over it. It will go, but you've got to ride it through." And he's right. It, you know, it's gone so far, and it has helped. And see, so, you know, having advice like that is just uh, very useful. So, not that I'm a, an oracle for mental health, but um, luckily for me, I was always very confident. I kept the confidence. Had loads of people to talk to, and as soon as it started, I told people about it. I didn't know what it was. I mean, Kate had to tell me 
it's a mental health issue. I don't walk down the street thinking I had a mental health issue or I've got mental health. That's not how it works. I was saying, like, I feel really <laughs> anxious. She started keeping a diary. <laughs> this is a good thing as well. You can get, if you've got someone with you, write a diary of what you do. When you're feeling a bit better, read that back. Hilarious. You know, to read it back and say, oh, Jason's um, standing by the bin. He can't eat his McDonald's today. So he's, he's having bites. No, he's thrown it away. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I just couldn't get the thing down me, you know. Or, you know, he's had to go out for a walk again. Or, oh, it's just ridiculous. These are all snapshots. This was not all encompassing for me. But like I said, so I was confident, loads of people to talk to. I talked about it and I got through it. But if you are not confident and you are isolated, you do struggle with it, you've got to talk to people. You, you, you've got to get out there and, you know, spread that message that you've got issues and you've got to find people that will listen and it will help. You know, it will go a long way to help. I was lucky, like I said, I was surrounded by people. Uh, even like I've mentioned before, you know, Robert, who helps me out at the nursery, I could talk to him about it. You know, I could talk to my mum and dad, but they didn't really understand it. And I was lucky like that. I was surrounded with a lot of people where I could just offload how I felt. And then it would come back with, you know, it would be helpful. I, I would get places. Uh, so you've got to talk. Got to use the things you've got, the things you love, you know, you'll get through it, hopefully. It, or you can ease it, you know, you can make it, you can make right. it better. But it's an important thing. You know, we all know the, well, not statistics, but we all know that men don't talk about their feelings, don't talk about things. Now, I'm not saying go out and tell strangers how you feel, but, you know, find guys who will listen, get a good friendship group and talk about it. And like I've said, the guys I've grew up with, I could tell them about it, but you know, you've got to find these guys who've been through it or know about it. You know, one of the guys I did grow up with, he's a great friend. I talked to him today about saying I got an interview. We had the same thing. He was talking about his interview this morning that he's done for a job. And he was right by it thinking, what if I got to walk out? What if I got... He's thinking, this is just daft. What is it? You know, so it's great to be able to talk and you've got to talk. You know, I've said it a million times. You've got to talk. Perhaps don't start a YouTube channel and start. See, I've got, you know, those videos I can go back and I can think, you know, that was before I went to Scotland and I was literally like, you know, inside I was on fire. <laughs> but you can't see, you know, you don't know. You can't tell. This is trouble. You, you can't see it. You think you can, but you can't. It's an invisible thing that affects a lot of people. I was never going to get issues. I was the confident guy. I'm the guy who walks in and, you know, says he's, you know, <laughs> I'm very full of myself, you know, it's like in a jokey way. But, you know, it got me and it, it did stop me. It ground me to a halt for a bit. So um, I wouldn't believe that. So hopefully that helps someone. Yes. Thank you. Just thank you for sharing that. That's it's, uh, it's really important. I don't think a lot of people, you know, men especially, like you mentioned, don't like to talk about it. And I know for me, I didn't really realize it until almost like after the fact, when I started to feel better, I was able to look back. I'm like, wow, I wasn't, I wasn't in a good place and I didn't really know why and really understand it yeah that's thank you that's that's good i i was gonna say as far as the not being able to get mcdonald's down <laughs> are you sure it was anxiety or was it just because it was mcdonald's <laughs> i was very early in the morning <laughs> this is yeah this was a trap i mean it did it got me um uh on eating i must admit it made me a bit weird with eating i don't know what that <laughs> It was bizarre. I, I understand it. When I what I've fought with has been it, it it's claustrophobia. You talk about not being able to get on the tube. Well, I could be sitting in a room by myself and I feel like I'm suffocating. And and uh it's a it's kinda horrifying. 
Oh. Um, and and the scale modeling is is something that can help pull me out of it. That's right. It just gives you something to focus on. Yeah, like you're talking about. I mean, I would go into supermarkets and I'd be thinking, the further back I go here, the further I've got to go back to get to the door. What do I need to leave for? But that is what I, that's what I'm thinking about. What if I need to leave? It's this thing. My friend gave me the best piece of advice. I'm going to share it. I told him this morning that it was a great piece of advice. Came back to it all the time. I said, I'm worrying about this. I'm worrying about if I got, you know, I feel sick or I've got to run out or I've got to do something. He said, look, it's never going to happen. What you're thinking is going to happen. You just got to say, it's never going to happen. And it, it isn't going to happen. That's what anxiety is doing. You know, I, I, anxiety attacks what you worry about. And it makes you keep thinking about it and make it worse and worse and worse like a pressure cook. If you can say to yourself, this ain't going to happen, you'll start to calm down. You know, find little things that help. For me, you know, getting a, a mint or something. No, will help. I got them here. This is the reason, you know, I, know, I can't eat one, but I can see it. So if I need to have one, it's there. You know, it's that sort of thing. Little, little triggers will can help. You've got to identify those things. So there you go. Hopefully that helps. No, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. That's good. That's really good stuff. What, what I like to do is I want to talk about one of your builds. I'm, I'm sure Doug probably has one he would also like to talk about. Um, this is something we like to do um, when we have a guest that has builds that are out there. The one I would like to mention, and it's one of my personal favorites of you and just model in general, is the Ryfield Firefly. Really? So I built that kit. Um, I started last year around this, actually after your first video came out. Um, I think I had already had it. And then I was like, I need a, I need, I like to watch videos about a model that I have that I want to build. Just, I don't know, kind of like gets me going like into it. Right. And also in case someone catches something that I don't. Yeah, yeah I'm the same. Totally. And I love that video and uh, all, all of your videos. I think you have two, two or three. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah I think the tracks is one alone. <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't use. I use aftermarket tracks. But, I like, um, yeah, best way. Best way. So yeah, I, I really like that video. I really like, I really like the finished product. You smashed me on that. I got to say, <laughs> I felt that and I thought, oh, this is great. Olive drab's not, you know, pretty tricky. I was really happy with that. And then you put your, <laughs> you did that hairspray chippy and I thought, oh, okay. Yeah. I left a bit on. I was just trying to copy Martin. That's all I was trying to do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I you know I just I really like I really like that build because it's a fantastic right. kit. I thought. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, amazing. The Firefly is awesome, and mm-hmm. again, because as a British armor fan, you know, I guess I kind of half American. I guess you know three quarters American. Well, let's circle back to that Brit armor. You'll you'll like it. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, for me, I saw it was coming out. British armor. I put it on the pre-order, got it. I think I started building it straight away. That was back when I, you know, there's there's little things you can do on YouTube. You know, being first with a popular kit with a review is an easy way to get some views. I think I was one of the first. I've always seemed to be fighting with uh, Phil Flory. Not that he's worrying about me, but <laughs> he's very quick <laughs> off and on. But uh, yeah, so um, I got that. I got straight into it. Loved it. It was great. Um, did build the kit tracks. They were a handful, but I've got a thing about tracks. You know, I struggle spending well, I can't even get truly tracks at the minute. Anyway, can't get anything here easily. People are. I don't know where they're getting them from. But straight the way through, it's br- you know, brilliant slide mold technology, you know, great gumbell, you know, all the things that you need to get sorted of fits, the metal um, light guards and stuff. And it was good. I was trying to look at the – did you have any – I don't know which one you did. Did you do 12, which was um, – No, I did the, um, the Polish one. Ah, uh, yes. So I was trying to find pictures. I always like to find pictures of a build. I couldn't actually find that one. I've since realized with British armor, it's who you know. I don't actually know anyone, but I'm following people who do know people. 
And they put, see, I found a picture of a Cromwell that I didn't realise, which is the airfix one. That's where you can see where it's black and green. It's not black and green, it's Dunkelgelb. It's unbelievable. You know, they, they, they've put Dunkelgelb over the olive drab on this British Cromwell. And you need the picture to be able to see that. So that was, uh, is it Elkins? Oh, I forget. I'd always do these people disservice. But it's the guy who took, is meant to have took out a uh, Whitman in that fireplace. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. another great thing, isn't it? Well, thanks for that. I, I mean, I think your bill's better than mine. Uh, but well, yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. It is really hard to find photos of British tanks. Like, it really is. I When I was doing the Border Crusader, like I couldn't find anything. No, you can find a couple of Crusaders. But you cannot match up those serial numbers, that T number. You can never find the one that's in the kit. I, I imagine it's something to do with being in archives at Bovington and in books. So there's copies. Yeah. So they're just not on the internet. And that's what we're saying, isn't it? They're not on the internet. I'm sure yeah. those are now thinking, well, it's in my library. If you've got the British tank, yeah. <laughs> who's, who's got those books? You know? Yes, I know when I when I did my shirt with my Firefly, I didn't put the 50 cal on because I know. Right, yeah. British, British, yeah, British typically didn't have a 50 cal. No. I got, I was like almost done and I just happened, I think I just started weathering and I was just looking up pictures because I, I, me personally, I don't necessarily build or paint or weather off of a picture, but I yeah. like a bunch of pictures and I, I pull all the best parts from that yeah. to fit with how, how I see the, the model. Mm-hmm. I found a damn picture of the exact <laughs> the firefly <laughs> I wanted of the one I was modeling and it had the 50 cal on it. And I was like, well, I'm like almost done with this. I'm not going to build that 50 cal because I just don't feel like it. Yeah. So like they took it off after they took that picture. <laughs> well, this is a sort of thing. Of course, you're doing a Polish one. They put, you know, it may just have been a British thing. The Polish probably kept the 50 yeah. cal on. But I think that's where I saw about it that they, they mentioned. They do some great videos. If you haven't mm-hmm. got the Tank Museum channel on. Oh, I, I love know, their videos. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Unbelievable stuff. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear the bills that people like. Because like my favourites... <laughs> seem to just I think this is a great video I'm so proud of this and it's like goes like that on the stats you like, <laughs> get something that I haven't you know I've just sort of put out there it's like yeah like that Churchill the, oh, that ran away for a little bit and I thought this is just ridiculous I like your Churchill too oh thanks um, yeah well yeah it's, it's a very basic one that was the whole idea you know nothing wrong with that I, I like basic yeah, um, yeah. And, and I also again cause I, I, I really like Sherman's too um, I like I like your Zvezda M4A2 Sherman build your video is why I bought that that kit. I was thinking about that kit the other day. The the um, seventy six is uh, very close to coming out. Yeah, um, I'll be getting that too. Yeah. So it it's like I said in the video. I mean, it's I think they've just fought. Let's leave the cast texture up to the modelers, which is fine. You know, if it's a, if it's a ball length to to put in the mold, don't do it. Give us the casting numbers like they have. That's the thing we need. Everyone can put um, cast texture on. So that's what I showed. And of course, with that kit. Um, with the it's the A3 hole, isn't it? Was it the A2? A2 hole. A2. Yeah, it's not got a lot of it. Is um is actually not ca- it's not a cast hole, so there isn't a lot to put on. It's only in certain areas. So I was really pleased with that kit. I was thinking about getting another one. Um, but it's the the A that M4 A2 is such an unusual variant. It wasn't actually used very much. Well, I don't know if it was used by the British. I'm looking at it now. It's got got it behind it. It's got the unusual tracks. T51 tracks. Is it? Can't remember now. Maybe yeah, the three bar cleat. There's a couple different styles. I don't remember which one no. that one has. It, I think it might be 50. It's either 40. No, it's not 49. 
and I look like a chump. I should know that as, as, <laughs> as, as much as I talk about loving Shermans. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's it's mainly the Soviet one, isn't it? That's where it was used. But again, it's not easy to find pictures of the one with the small 75. It's that 76 variant that's coming. That's the one. In one of the group chats I'm in, we were just talking about that too, because there's that awesome picture, I think, in the Alps with an M4A2 76 and the cresting a hill and the T34 right behind it. Right, yeah. That's such a cool picture. I was looking for um, T34 85s in Manchuria, which, by the way, again, I don't know what book that's meant to be. I, I have you got? He's got this. This is. See, I told you I like Mojo. Have you got? You got this one because of listening to that. I, I do not have that. I I think Scott bought that. I don't know if he Scott has. Scott has it sitting on his coffee table. Oh, Scott does have it. Yeah, I saw it the other day. I was at his house. But um, yeah, so that was. I'm hoping that's got some of these T-34s in Manchuria. I mean, I got really interested in the fact that there was a Soviet invasion of Manchuria. You know, I, I called it Japan, again, on Facebook. I soon got called out there. But, you know, they, they attacked Japan to try and sort of, well, I suppose a bit of land grabbing or, or something. I don't know what it was about, but it was quite difficult then, wasn't it? Because the Americans were attacking as well. So I just thought it was interesting to kind of go that angle uh, for a T-34-85 and the post-war ones as well. But that picture came up. And um, I was thinking it was there, but then, of course, you see the Alps and you realize, obviously not. I've been looking at your uh, a lot of your posts, especially old posts on Instagram. You've posted a few. Um, I love I love the Falk Wolf 190. You've got a, I mean, these, I think these builds are from last year, but you've got a couple of A's, Edward kits, and then you did the D13. That's and I'm checking these out and they're, re- I love them. I absolutely love them. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. The D13 for me, you know, that, I'm really proud of that that build. Again, that was one that sort of flew through the radar, I think, but I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I mean, I love the 190. I mean, the, the Luftwaffe is, is a real big... Certain certain bits of it, I mean, some people are very interested in the whole of the Luftwaffe. I like the fighters, so the, the FW190 series. For me, I, I'm talking again with Paddy. Um, I should mention Tim a bit more, but it's, it's all Paddy. Isn't it? But um, we're talking about this idea of the gold collection. This is his idea, really, of having, you know, these, these late war aircraft and that's that's where that comes in you know d13 is one of those it's such an unusual aircraft i mentioned in the video i don't know if you've seen you may not have been able to go through it but the story of where that that aircraft turned up is just mind-boggling it was in some suburb in america for about 40 years and this chap who was an expert on it (laughs) walked to work for 10 years it was only just around the corner and some bloke in america just bought it he bought that fw190 d D13, and um, a G10, a 109 G10. It just had it. It was just in the side of this yard. All the fence was broken down. People had got in there smashing in bits and taking panels off and stuff. This is like a one, a completely unique variant. I mean, for a lot of people, it's just like a 190 D9. But people who know, that D13 is very unusual. There wasn't many of those. And it's the same aircraft. And that's the one you've now got in your, um, is it? Uh, I can't remember where it is now. You've got it anyway exhibited, and it's in, in sort of flying state, but it's not going to fly. And it's got that really unusual camouflage, and that's what it, it took me a long time to do that. So I, I really like that that build. Yeah, I think they had that one in the Flying History Collection in Seattle, but after Paul Allen died, that's gotten sold off. I don't know where it's at now. I did, yeah, it's certainly in uh, America, but of course, uh, you know, big big place for a Brit, so I'm not sure where it is, but uh, yeah. It's a big place for us, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's great to hear. No, I'm I'm, I'm glad they're of uh, of interest. Gosh, they're lovely. I love those. They're they're just one of my favorite aircraft. They're yeah, just, I, think, I love the lines. I love I love everything about them. I think except for me, who flew them. Well, yeah, no, that's the thing as well, isn't it? I, I did it in a recent video explaining that I really like the late war Luftwaffe, and 
you know, saying, oh, don't, don't judge, you know, and it, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's well known. We can build model kits of these, you know, the, the, the TA-152 is going to be something I'm going to be doing soon. I mean, that is just a spectacular aircraft, you know, whatever you, you say, it's just unbelievable. But of course, you know, <laughs> to quote my uh, friend, I, you know, I'd be in a Tempest, not a TA-152, but it like that. <laughs> but it's, it's nice to like these aircraft. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad. For me, I think I'm not really massively proud of, am I? Any armor? See, the trouble is, I'm an I'm an I'm an original armor builder, so I know what I'm looking for, and I know what it needs to be, and I know when I fall short. You know, when you've got, you know, I think you've got the three gods coming up. I don't know whether it will be before or after this, but you see sort of stuff they do, and you know, you're always sort of chasing that idea. And that, see, aircraft for me is is more the misty unknown, if you know what I mean. So it, 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 when I get something, I think, oh, that's great. I'm really happy with that. I get more enjoyment back from it, I guess. So I'm always sort of second guessing my armor building. <laughs> oh, me too. Just ask TJ. I'm about to wrap up my first piece of armor that I built in over 25 years. So yeah, it's uh, which is awesome, by the way, Doug. Thank you. I think Let's it's see. turned out great. That's your T3485, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been following all of this. I think I'm in both your your group builds, but not partaking, but just sort of watching in the background. It's great stuff. Yeah. So all right. We always like to ask guests, you know, who are you inspired by, you know, and what are you inspired by? Yes. Well, for me, it's not the usual thing uh, that most people say. I am kind of stuck in my original, what I grew up with. So I've got some props here. I was going to show you. So for me, Tamiya Model Magazine International. This one in particular, I just thought I'd show you is I'm actually in this one. Have I got the cover build? No. I won a, I won a competition. <laughs> I've got my name here somewhere. I won this playstation game when i was about 14 <laughs> it's brilliant so this is um august september 2001 now these are my inspiration i went on for a little bit up until about 2006 i think i come back to these all the time all the time i mean this one here it, you know the cover's off because of the famo build the famo for me the tamiya famo is oh my nemesis build i've built it three times uh, only finished one not happy with it got the trailer in a box, you know, I will do it. And so from that, one of my my big inspirations is not only Tamiya Model Magazine International. I grew up with this guy. It's I don't I don't know him at all, but Marcus Nichols, who's the editor, I think he's still the editor. His, he is. Yep. Yeah, his work when I was going through this, you know, I just always it was just so inspiring. It made me buy my first etch set. It made me want to paint and finish models like they were in the magazines. Not just him, but mainly him, I gotta be honest. It's a lot of his builds that I tend to look at. Yep. So I'm going to give him, you know, a, a shout out on here. I see, I see him from a distance at Telford. I always think about going up and saying hello. I sort of get there and I think, no, <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. Whereas I sort of grown up with him. So it'd just be so odd. I just don't engage. Uh, so I just think it would be bonkers. And then kind of leading on from that for the armor is um, Tony Greenland. You know, no one dry brushes models anymore. No one finishes like this. But boy, oh boy, was this, you know, a defining era. Some of these builds in here are just absolutely spectacular and i used to look at this when i was i don't know 11 12 i got this and i would just pour over it and um, before i started the beginner's guide i read this back to front and there are some amazing things in it and you'd be amazed how current some of the uh, actual um, content in there is a lot of people are using it now and and you look at it and you think well, that's an amazing idea and you go back there and it's, it's already been written down in 1995 so you know 
don't underestimate this. Go back and have a look at um, Tony Greenland, Shep Payne, you know, Verlinden. It wasn't so much for me, but Verlinden is obviously a, a master. There's a lot to be used from those guys, and you can use the core basics and bring it up to a sort of modern level. That Obviously, we've changed. We've gone through the kind of MIG way of things, although obviously that's still around with the heavy modulation. Now we're going into like ultra-realism, uh, lots of weathering, so it's good ways to pick up that sort of thing. For aircraft, uh, Brett Green, Chris Welchop, their Luftwaffe builds are just how it's meant to look for me, especially Welchop. I mean, boy, but I, just unbelievable. You, know, you look at it, you go and it's sprayed with an Aztec <laughs> airbrush, you think, okay, where am I going to buy an Aztec airbrush from? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're just done exactly how we like it. I mean, Paddy and Tim and in the group, we're always talking about those two in particular, every time, you know, always sharing different things. Of course, we're talking about some of these classic uh, Luftwaffe builds like that, you know, with Tamiya series. They've done those builds and to see them, you just think, ah, oh, it really gets the juices flowing. And then unusually is the YouTube mini channels. So by that, I mean the guys who are doing, well, it's basically Warhammer and Wargaming channels. I mean, that is who I look at for inspiration. They make me want to go and make a video because I don't know what it is about them. I do watch scale modeling channels, but I, I don't really like sitting and watching a model being built. I like more like Phil Flory's sort of original shows and those sort of things where people are talking about what's on their bench. That's the sort of thing. I like to be talked to and, and hear it as opposed to see it so much. But when it comes to the YouTube channels, you know, especially like Ninjon, I'm really following him, been following him right from the start. I listen to Trapped Under Plastic all the time. Miniac is like, one of my favourite things, uh, my most favourite is Midwinter Minis. Um, I really like his stuff because I grew oh. up with this. You know, the- I like I like I like his uh, channel too. Oh, it's just fantastic! I'm so glad as well because I was with a lot of these guys when they were really small. I'm so glad they've got absolutely. You know, they're all doing it as their job. Fair play to them. I don't think Ninjon's about to. Uh, I think he's he's really approaching that hundred case. You know, he's he's starting to teeter on that edge. So I really like those, and I I think I learn a lot from them. It's not so much. What is it I learned? It's not really a modeling that I learned. They, <laughs> I don't want to say there's steps behind, but they're using a lot of the things we use. They're just finding like Sprugu and that sort of thing. But it's, it's, I suppose, the enjoyment, the way they do it. I always like this idea. I've been thinking whether sort of like a 24-hour build would be applicable. I don't think it would. I think it would be silly. But, you know, those sort of things that they do, these armor building, army building um, contests, I, I just think it's, I find it really enjoyable. And um, I do love sitting down watching their um, videos. I come from a time my brother was, He's six years older than me. So he had Space Crusade, Space Hulk, Hero Quest, you know, these retro mini. And then when Midwinter Mini starts painting through these boxes, I just can't believe it. Absolutely classic. That's really who I find in, inspiring. You know, I see a lot of the, the guys that we all talk about, you know, Wilder, Rinaldi for, for armor. It's just, you know, they're obviously great, but it doesn't really inspire me so much. I, I don't like to try and take tips from people. I like to try and see stuff in like, Tony Greenland's book or, or stuff and, and kind of see the basic idea and then kind of work it out myself because I don't really want to copy people because I know I'm doing it on YouTube. I, I want to try and at least stumble on it myself. Not pine, I'm not saying I'm pioneering new techniques, but I don't want to go, I've watched Rinaldi's video and now I'm doing OPR exactly like this. It's great that it's a resource there, but for me, I don't think I should really be trying to copy what they do. I try and limp along somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's what I really like. I want to circle back a little bit you're talking about tony greenland and and no one dry brushes armor anymore and i i would just like to say that dry brushing is a supremely underused and underrated technique and as a matter of fact there's a guy named ivan drond i think that's how you say his last name he's russian he's done models for 
ammo. He's actually in the, they did a 4BO solutions, yep. uh, like mini, mini box. Yep. He, he built the, the T-34 in that. Um, he actually commented on mine when it was on, on, uh, Facebook, which was kind of funny because <laughs> he told me, he told me I cheated, but <laughs> it, it, tongue in cheek. He, I think on his Instagram, he recently did, uh, I think it's the BMPT Terminator, the one with the, the Russian thing. It's got the two oh, uh, auto cans on it. Yeah. He dry brushed it and it looks awesome. Like it, I, I challenge anyone that says, oh, you know, dry brushings, they don't do that anymore. It's, you know, that's for noobs or whatever. This dude's like a master builder, super talented, and he dry brushed a model and it looks really good. Yeah. Like if you, you do it the right way and smartly, it's great. Like it, and, and dry brushing with oils too is I like to do, especially like on Sherman's. Yep. Because yep. the OD would wear really dark and you dry brush, like especially over cast texture or like on the edges. And that matches what you see in pictures where it's just this dark, not quite black, but it's not bare metal. Like it's weird, but like, or just dry brushing paint. I, I think I did that. Easy at Sherman a year ago, and I dry brushed Vallejo olive, U.S. olive drab, which is super, super dark olive drab color on some of the exposed surfaces. And it looks, I thought it looked pretty good. Yeah, this is this is why I like to go back to it. You know, th- there's no right or wrong way to do it. You know, um, and it, it's this hard and fast rule that, like, like you, you know, just said, you shouldn't dry brush. It's an old technique. <laughs> Everything has its place. You know. Okay, don't right. dry brush a, a tank quite like Tony Greenland does, and you know get super. <laughs> You know, light green edges on pans of grey, but you know you can use the techniques and apply it. However, and this is the other thing I think people misunderstand. When you look at like Tony Greenland and you look at his gallery at the back, yeah, you know, that spans a twenty years of modelling, I think. So obviously, some in there are, are very extreme, and then the ones that are later look really good, much more like the sort of where we were getting to at the beginning of the sort of two thousands when MIG started coming. They look like that, and so I think it's all very people people judge things. I think a bit too. Um, too easy as well. So you've got to be, I think, willing to accept anything. You know, I mean, look at those right. blue painting by brush. These, these, uh, it seemed to be Russian for some reason. Um, doing that figure painting, and I, you look at it and you think, no, that must be like a decal or something. You've painted, hand painted a lion and this whole thing just on a dress. And you think, what? And it's all just hand painted. You know, oh, it's just spectacular. So there's you, you can, I think, you can do anything if you, you know, try it. That'd be the way. <laughs> All right. We want to thank you once again for joining us for our conversation with Jason Champion of Champion Scale Modeling. He's got some uh, some links for you. We're on YouTube, Instagram. You can find him on Facebook. Tell us where we can find you, Jason. Yeah. So uh, on YouTube, it is, it's all the same thing. So it makes it nice and easy. It's Champion Scale Modeling. So you can put that into Google. That will come up with the YouTube channel, come up with the website, which I'm trying to keep going. Uh, so that that covers my YouTube side of things. And for if anyone's interested in the Spanish Civil War, we're still running the group. So if you search for Spanish Civil War SIG, so that's S-I-G, we've got a great website, if I do say so myself. It's one I've handcrafted. It's got loads and loads of builds on there of all sorts of things of Spanish Civil War. And we've also got a Facebook group as well, which is the Spanish Civil War Modeling Group. So if you're interested in those things, you know, do check them out. Um, and it's all easy to find in the in the different search engines. Awesome. So thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us. We really enjoyed it. Have a great night. Yeah, thanks.
Well, that was a really great interview to listen to. Uh, Jason, I know Jason really well. Uh, he also runs a 109 SIG with me. He's a great guy, excellent modeler. And um, it was really, really great to hear his perspective on his personal life and in his modeling life. So, um, yeah, that was that was a really great listen to. And well done, TJ and Doug. That was a, a great interview done by you two. Thanks for that, Ivan. The next segment, we're going to take a time to discuss just kind of what's on our mind. You know, each of us will take a little topic, we'll we'll kind of riff on it, and then we'll move on. And, you know, certainly for me, I, I've thought a lot about this lately and trying to think about, you know, improving my modeling skills and thinking about what points in those builds that really like are literally a roadblock. Like I, I look around my bench and it's very indicative of what steps I struggle with because all my models are stalled there that are stalled and, and a good number are. And, and for me, that stall step it comes after chip paint. It comes after the wash. It comes at the kind of earth effects for armor modeling. Something that I constantly struggle with is pulling off dirt, dust, and you know that kind of effect. Pigments are black magic. You cannot convince me otherwise. I'm pretty sure Rinaldi made a deal with the devil to work with them <laughs> because he is the only soul, and and Adam Wilder as well. So maybe they've tag teamed, you know, him, them and Hades. <laughs> the uh, Devil's Trident, we'll call them, uh, that work the work the pigment gods. But you know, outside of that, you know, it's it's really it's it's a struggle for me. They're so damn messy too; like they get everywhere. It is something that I constantly struggle with, and specifically that step that that dry dust effect. Now, fortunately, I've learned a lot from Night Shift. There, we pay him a couple bucks for saying that. Um, <laughs> but you know how he's using enamel effects and some of those acrylic effects to achieve those dust effects, but. Sometimes, you know, I, I would like to use pigments and again, it's black magic. I, I would just love to, you know, maybe go around the room if, if you guys could just talk about what, what step that you struggle with and, you know, maybe what steps you're taking to get past it. So Scott, I'll kick it over to you. You know, I want to come back to pigments. Um, I did pigments on a, a Mark IV uh, male tank that I did. It was the first time I'd really made extensive use of pigments and that model almost hit the garbage uh, can a couple of times. I mean, it, it isn't, so much the pigments themselves is trying to get them to fix to the model. And like you said, it's it's definitely black magic. I think it's interesting to note too that, you know, pigments were all the rage for a little while and, and you can see that the use of them has really gone away. And I don't think it's because they're any less relevant. I just think they're very, very difficult to use. I don't plan on not ever using them again, but like you said, if there's another way it's sort of like how I feel about photo etch. There's some things that photo etch is really good for, but there's a lot of things where I feel like photo etch is a really two-dimensional answer, and I don't really like it. I'd rather use a 3D printed item or a, a scratch build item. So that's anyway, cheating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, but yeah. Um, so I, I I'm going to echo your comments on on pigments, and it, it certainly is uh, a roadblock for me. Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I've really never touched pigments in my life, so I can't I can't comment on that as much as to say that when I see Mike and, and Adam and Martin playing with them, it just kind of it blows my mind at their ability to take something that is not the actual thing and make it look like the actual thing. For myself, I always seem to stumble when it, on aircraft, particularly when it comes to those color coats. Those first, you've got the underpainting done, which has sort of been my MO for the last little while. Getting that color blocking done always seems to be the part that I... I'm slow to start it. I'm slow to get through it. Uh, part of that comes down to having sort of a janky compressor right now, which I don't think helps. It just doesn't put you in the mind that you can sort of go down for a night and, and really get solid chunk of work done. But, you know, I'm still too new back in the hobby to have the confidence to say, okay, I 
this is how much pain I put down. And because I know I'm going to make up the rest of it with weathering effects, you know, with the one out with the, uh, the Fulgori I just finished, you know, I, I put down my color blocking and everything looked really good. And at the last minute I decided, no, it needed to be a little, little richer. And, you know, I feel like I put next to no paint down and most of the underpainting that was just perfectly there, just for the most part, kind of just faded away. So that's the stage I think that I find hardest because I can, I feel like I can recover from anything before that. And I can feel like I can kind of recover from anything after that. But that seems to be the stage where if you screw up, you really are taking not just one or two steps back, but I feel like you're really just, that's the mojo killer for me. It's, you know, it's interesting you say that, Chris, because, you know, you build in 172nd scale and your aircraft are, are very, very small and you do other small modeling as well. But you're saying that, and I think that kind of illustrates that we're all our own worst, worst critic because you're doing what 132nd scale modelers are doing as far as layering your color and putting down such smooth, thin layers of paint, but you're doing that in 172nd scale. And when you're posting your work in progress photos, I'm always watching and, and just just saying, okay, there is no way that's a 172. This is a 30-second scale model. He's cheating. He's using some <laughs> kind of digital effect to make it look like a 172nd scale, like that Maki you just did or the 109. Anyway, it's interesting that you say that because that's the part of your modeling that really just blows my mind when I see your work in progress photos. Well, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate that. And I think, like you said, I think, I think being your own worst critic is part of that. You know, you know exactly how much work has gone into it. You know, ideally what you still have planned for it. And it's just one of the things as, as you get closer and closer to the, through the process to, and you get closer to that finish, you become more acutely aware of everything that's gone before. You become more acutely aware of what an error now would cost. And, you know, to get back to John's sort of topic, I mean, for me, that biggest hurdle though, is putting on those first color coats. You know, like I said, if I can get through that, I, I, yeah, there's still, there's still always that risk in the back of my head, but you know, I feel like I can get through that and I can get through the stuff before that because you're just cutting back to primer or, or a little bit of bare plastic and, and then shooting some primer over top of it. But once you've got the underpainting down and you've got to now do that delicate dance of hiding about 85 to 90% of it, and you know, you've spent 20 hours doing underpainting. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a tense, it's a tense stage for me. 20 hours for a 70 second scale underpainting? Yeah, thereabouts. Because I'm usually doing two to three colors. Uh, with the Spitfire, for instance, I I didn't set out to do it this way, but it kind of, it strikes me that it, it's almost has a bit of a stress skin effect. You know, I've tried to use light and shadow in a, in an approximate way that would, that would rec, you know, reflect light shining down on it. Uh, like I said, I didn't set out to do it that way, but that's sometimes just the way things organically go. But it starts with a dark gray, and then you have a medium gray, and then you have a, a light gray and highlights, and then you have tint colors, you know, just to give some variety to the to the underpainting, and and now it's and now it's putting down that medium sea gray. But yeah, well, like all told, it probably took me about twenty hours to put that together, and then you've got to you know, and then there's the sanding stages between some of those colors as well. So, you know, there's a lot in it. There's a lot that I'm that I'm trying to push myself to do. There's a lot that I'm trying to push. I think what can be done with one seventy second scale. I mean. For no other reason, just to know that I can do it. I'm not trying to set a standard for other people, but you know, I look at what people do in 148th and 132nd, and I don't see it as 172nd as being any different. You just you just got to paint smaller, right? You've just got to have finer control. So I just I love the challenge of it. But yeah, it's a pucker moment 
putting those color codes down. Doug, what are your thoughts on the matter? Well, when we talk about pigments, um, I'm so new to armor. I've tried it all of once and I threw it all over my, uh, my T3485 and it was fun. Uh, the complaint I have about that stuff is just, it's, it just comes off too easy. It's hard. You can't seal it really. And it, and it just comes right off if you touch it. So, so once it's on there, even if it looks good, if you're not dang careful, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to ruin it. I, I don't know. Jury's still out on that for me. As far as what Chris is doing, uh, Doug, you guys are talking black magic. That's black magic to me on that scale. But I get, I get the idea. I've, I've done not to that extent, not, not, I don't, I wouldn't say it's the same uh, level of quality of paint, but I do, I do layer my paints even on smaller subjects. My little Star Wars stuff, especially my little 172nd scale stuff, there's every one of those ships has, has eight to 10 coats of paint on it. Just, just different layers, different colors, different shades of gray. That's how I, that's how I do it. Well, TJ, you build like, you know, 40 models a year. So I don't know if there's a stage that hangs you up, but if there is, what would it be? <laughs> so <laughs> keep picking the next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you say you struggle with, with earth effects. I'm going to call it bullshit on that because if anyone here struggles on earth effects, it's, it's this guy right here. Um, I, you can ask Scott. Scott's usually my sounding board. The, the, the first steps of weathering are always like, they are, I mean, they, I clinch right up when, uh, when it's time to, uh, start weathering a, a tank, even, even though, you know, I, I follow the old adage of you start, you know, start behind the running gear and on the bottom where no one can see it in my mind doesn't matter. Yeah. It, the, the pucker factor just rises exponentially. The second you start to put mud or dirt on something, I know, I, I think I've said it before and I, I and I know I told you guys when I was doing my crusader, I don't like dry, dusty finishes. That is hard. Even following, I mean, I pretty much just copied what, what night shift did and what, what Martin did on his. And the whole time I was like, how the hell does he do this? I've watched this damn video. I try to do the exact same thing. And I'm like, it just doesn't look like that. I, I don't know why I'm using the same products as him. I, I don't know. He just has something that I, I guess I don't, which is fine. Yeah screw pigments um i try to make <laughs> i try to make it work i can make it work to a degree the firefly i did earlier this year i did use pigments they actually look really good it's probably some of the best pigment work i ever did but i it was also really limited um the the running gear the bogies are not that dirty to, to me they're like just dirty enough yeah that sorry mike pigments are for the birds <laughs> you can you can have that stuff man so Ivan, why don't you bring us home? I, I I think you're kind of a complete modeler as well with TJ. So I'm I'm anxious to hear what you know stops you in your tracks. Well, if TJ says he struggles with effects, I call bullshit <laughs> because <laughs> nah. I, I think I have only ever done Earth effects successfully on one build, and that was the ambulance I just finished from ICM. I just can't do it. Like TJ said, I can watch the guys doing it on on video or in the books. Same products, same methods. It's like, mine doesn't look like that. Why? So it might, the thing is with me, mine just looks like it is a product that has been stuck to the model. Nothing about it looks natural. So it's it, I can modulate a, a, a model perfectly. Well, I say perfectly. That sounds really big-headed. But I can do it <laughs> to a way I'm happy with it. I can do ambient occlusion. I can do oil effects, oil dot filtering. I can do all of that, and I'm delighted. As soon as it 
comes to doing some earth effects, whether it be mud, dust, snow, anything. It's like, I'm going to ruin this model before I've even tried to apply any product yet. So as soon as it gets to that stage, it's like, can I not just leave it like this and call it finished? But it's, no, earth effects, big no-no. I can do dioramas fine. I just can't apply it to the model. Mm-hmm. It's really frustrating. Well, and I like how Martin kind of just throws shade on everybody because it's not just pigments. It's like, oh, you know, I went out to my garden and I got this dirt, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I peeled this other stuff off the side of a building or something. And I, you know, I throw it on. And of course, it looks like, it looks mint, right? It's like, and he's always never done it before. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to build a tree. I've never done that before. <laughs> Doesn't look good. I, I just built it. I'm going to put it on my diorama, but we'll get better next time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and paint figures, but, you know, I've never done Never done before, it before. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've certainly talked enough about my topic. Chris, what's on your mind? Well, actually, I think mine actually conveniently sort of follows on yours a little bit. And, and mine sort of harkens back to a, a conversation on SMCG that popped up a week and a half, two weeks ago. And the conversation itself, I think, was sort of a little esoteric, a little deep. Uh, somebody was sort of talking about how we often associate storytelling with our builds, and he was kind of positing, like, could we develop a language and methodology for just, you know, letting the chips and the stains and all the effects that we apply just be what they are and not have to sort of have a story behind it. And it led to questions about language and maybe what people mean by storytelling. And and what really twigged for me, though, because it related to how I realized I had weathered my 109, was it's not necessarily about storytelling, but there is a, I think there's a high degree of visual, visualization. And for me, it was... You know, especially again, having come back to the hobby, it was, you know, that that practice of looking at the model and saying, okay, well, I know there's dirt there and there's like a foothold there. So what would getting onto that plane look like? Right. Or what would getting on that tank look like? Or what would any number of things, interactions that we have either as humans or, you know, like a T thirty four going through birch forest, like what when we put those scratches, that one and done that Mike talks about, you know, I've heard people say like Again, for them, it's a pucker factor because it's like, well, I've got one chance to do this. And the only way they can think about it is I'm scratching my paint with a needle and I need to make it look like something. What I'm curious about from you guys and and sort of the, the posse in general, like, do you guys visualize when you're applying these weather effects? Do you think not in terms of, okay, I need to put my brush like this and move it like this and do whatever? Or do you, as part of the process, either before or during, sit there and say, okay, a guy's going to stand here. And his foot's gonna his foot's gonna go here, but his knee's probably gonna brush against here. I mean, Will Pattison's just finished P40 is a great example. He had that little bit on the top of the cockpit where paint had been worn off by a pilot grabbing it with his hand. And on the I think on the left cockpit bulkhead, he had a spot where he could have arbitrarily worn off a cockpit placard, or he he sort of ground in some grime. I don't know that he visualized how a pilot would sit in there, but one could make the case that he did and. You know, and sometimes we have reference to that, but quite often we don't. So that practice of visualizing how how things happen, I think, is is a beneficial. But I'm I'm curious how many of you are actually are actually doing that on your own builds when you're doing the weathering phase. John, John, what about you? Yeah, I certainly do that, especially with armor. I think you know Martin's kind of hinted at it in some of his videos. When you you know when you apply chips, you really got to think about how the crew moves, especially if you're using like a sponge and chip. But no, I, I follow that same logic. I'm thinking about, okay, how are they getting out, in and out of this vehicle? When the vehicle moves, where does mud go? Uh, for instance, last night I was working on the shirts in for, for a German vehicle and I'm thinking, okay, 
I have it right in front of me. I've had all, I have it all together. So all five panels and I'm thinking, okay, if it's, you know, the right side of this, you know, set of panels is the front of the vehicle. The the left is the back. So obviously as the vehicle moves, there's going to be more dust and dirt accumulating, you know, sequentially up on those panels. So I tried to replicate that, but no, that's constantly on my mind. And, you know, sometimes it even harkens back to the point before, like I really struggle with chip paint in some regard and specifically just worn finish around hatches sometimes. And in this case, like a Mark four German tank where it's like just a plate and there's a hatch and trying to replicate, okay, the guy's probably got to slide his butt across it when he tries to get in and, and making sure I try to capture that as best as I can. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you always thinking about, you know, how are they getting on these vehicles? Thinking about how I got on the vehicle when I was in a museum and then trying to replicate that kind of wear. And then I, what I really would love to do is like get some 3D printed boot marks and put those around. But yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what I'm doing on my end. Cool. Yeah, I've noticed that Mike Rinaldi also will sometimes, like Martin, instead of saying like, I'm, I'm putting my brush here, he'll, he'll describe, <laughs> it almost strikes me as like being like Bob Ross, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he'll, he'll talk about what's causing that influence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I kind of feel like probably using that as a cue for, how he's going to put that down, right? That mm-hmm. if 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 it's that one and done, he's not thinking about the brush or the 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 needle or or whatever his tool is uh, that to me a thing. But it's you know what's that what's that branch going to do? You know how is mm-hmm. it going to bend and flex as that tank continues to rumble past it? Doug, mm-hmm. what about you doing more sci-fi stuff? Well, most of my sci-fi has been has been Star Wars and. I tend to look at the filming models if they exist. Sometimes it's it's stuff that was all all done on a, uh, a CGI. But I always tend to think about yeah, where where would the pilot go? Where would the crew be working on it? And also not having any idea how any of this stuff works, how it's lubricated, what kind of liquids might be in it. Where would it? Where would I have stains? Where would I have something flowing? Where would I have something it could run into? I, I, I do always think about that now, whether or not I get it right, who cares? It's science fiction. It's not even science fiction. It's, it's a fantasy, right? So, so I can put it where I want to, but I do try to try to put my own level of realism on it, whether it's, it's accurate or not. Scott, what about you? I mean, you seem to have your, your hands on a lot of different genres. So. Yeah, I think, I think it depends, you know, if you're doing a subject like, like uh, slave one is a good example where you've got photos up on the wall, like Doug said, of a studio miniature. I mean, the the finish work is very, very specific to one vehicle. Or like if you have a, a picture of a firefly and the transmission cover on the front has a stain where, you know, it's leaking. There's features like that when you're working from photos that I think you're very, very deliberate about it. And then there's other times where I think it's more of an impressionistic thing, like what John was saying, like, if you know, this hatch there's crewmen going in and out of it. So even though I don't have a photo of the top of this tank, cause it might not exist. What would that look like? You know, there's mm-hmm. gotta be some, some, you know, chipping and some burnishing and everything. So I think the answer is probably, it depends. I think working from photos can be a little bit restrictive sometimes, but I think it can always be freeing because weathering if you've got a blueprint to follow, I think that can help you get through the weathering sometimes better than if you don't have one and you're just sort of winging it as you go, I guess. I mean, what do you guys think? No, I would agree. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. 
And I think if you can build that knowledge of, of how things weather without having to go by what's in a photo all the time, then you might have a photo of what that cockpit looks like on one aircraft and where a pilot grabs it, but you might not have it for another one. But if they're similar in size and structure, you can kind of infer, okay, well, if it's like that on a P-40 and on a Spitfire, well, then this obscure Italian thing, and trust me, Italian stuff is as obscure as it seems to get <laughs> online. That's like saying armed and dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, it, it gives you, you're, you're not slave to that, to needing that photo. You can say, yeah, these are similar. So it only makes sense that they would probably do the same thing and would probably wear the same way. What about you, Ivan? Yeah, for me, um, I, I don't follow or try and replicate images. I, I kind of just go with the flow. I don't know what I'm going to do really till I'm about to do it. Uh, I follow three kind of rules for myself. Is it logical? Is it probable? And does it look interesting? And that's about it. I don't, uh, I, I might look at a few photos and be like, yeah, okay, that panel was heavily used. They opened that one a bit more than the other one, but that's about it. I, tr- I try and just go with what would look cool and what cool. would be actually plausible rather than it's like, I, I don't want to say I don't just have to justify my model to other people, but um, it's just how I do things. If it looks interesting and if it's logical, then I'll usually go down that route. Nice, nice. And what about you, TJ? Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as, as John. I don't storytell per se as I'm weathering, especially, or painting because I I, I treat painting uh, like Mike Rinaldi does where the, the chipping is not part of the weathering that's part of the painting process Mm -hmm. because that's what the paint looks like right and i know i've talked to ivan about it i as well and we're on the same page as far as photos go i don't build the photos i've done it once kind of but is a photo from one angle so anything not in that angle i just made up you know is it right who cares it looks cool Uh, that's all i care about but you know i think about I like to build allied armor, right? So I know I've built a number of Shermans. If you look at reference photos at Shermans, especially the barrel where it meets the mantlet is usually burnished for two reasons. One, the crew grab it when they get into the driver's seat and the co-driver's seat. And two, if they have their hatches open and they're standing, they rest their arm on the barrel if it's pointing forward. The same thing with the commander's cupola. When his hatches are open, that ring around it is usually burnished and gross because that's where he puts his hands and, or, or he'll lean when he's poking his head up out of the uh, cupola. So I do that. I don't, I think about that, but i also don't cause it's kind of, I've never seen a photo that doesn't have that. So to me, it's kind of like automatic. If you're building a Sherman and you want it to look weathered, you do those things. You burnish the paint on the mantle and on the end of the gun and around the, the hatches because that's what they look like. Well, hey, that was great perspective from all of you. Thank you. Something I wanted to ask you all about is something that came up on the Interesting Modeling Company uh, video the other night, and it was about binning and destroying kits. Um, like I have binned a lot of kits uh, that I knew I was never going to finish, or they were at a point I knew, no, I'm not going to be able to save this. It's done. Bin it. Have any of you got to a stage where you're just like, no, this is unretrievable, Regardless of how much money I've spent on it, I cannot fix it. Get get rid of it, rather than have it sit on sit on your mind all the time, knowing it's like that kit's on the shelf, unfinished. So, have any of you got to the point where you're binning kits? We'll start with John. Oh God, me. Well, you know, I'm going to turn my camera, even though our listeners can't see, and you can see the plethora of half built kits there um, <laughs> on my bench behind me. So that should tell you a story about 
uh, I stupidly don't throw a lot of things away. Only recently I've started to do that because of the move. Only because, you know, I, I need to treat them more like uh, like financial investments in a sense where it's a sunk cost. And, you know, I, if it's going to get better, great, but most of the time it probably won't. So I just need to cut my ties and move on. And I, I tend to think I have an emotional attachment to a lot of these things, which I shouldn't because I look at them like, man, I screwed this up. But, you know, there's a chance I could finish it. So I guess at the end of the day, I'm I keep too many things and maybe it's because I start too many things. But it's certainly something I need to get better about. I need to learn how to let things go. I need to learn that, hey, this didn't work. Just let it go, man. Yeah, you dropped 50 bucks, but whatever. Now, if I can salvage things from it, you know, I'll pick it apart and then put it you know, in my spares box. But that's certainly something that I've struggled with and continue to struggle with is, is knowing when to let go. Yeah, I agree there. The emotional attachment is, is something I, uh, I struggle with as well. But at the, at the end of the day, it's just a box of plastic. Yeah. What about you, TJ? I can't imagine you've been many. You build them too quickly. I don't, throw, <laughs> I don't throw a damn thing away ever. I mean, you could probably tell from behind me. My, this place is a wreck. Now, everything I've screwed up, I still have. Now, I'll, we'll throw away stuff that is complete and I don't want anymore because I don't like it. Uh, and that's few and far far between. Uh, I think I've only done that maybe to one or two. And it's when I moved like an idiot. I brought it with me, even though I didn't really want it. And when I unpacked it, I was like, nope trash um but for the most part yeah i'm like again like john uh i don't i feel like i can save it even if i probably can't but um i also i i try to finish more now and that's part of the reason why i've finished so many kits this year is most of them were already started so instead of throwing them away i'm like i might as well just finish this this thing uh but also not (laughs) Not not to sound big headed, but I, I don't I try not to put myself in a position where I would want to throw it away. And that's just by being conservative. You know, I don't I won't take a lot of chances. And it's not because I think everything I do is great. It's like I don't I won't especially then more so now I I push myself harder. But before I wouldn't take chances, I would play it safe to minimize my in my head, at least minimize my odds of ruining something and feeling like I couldn't, I couldn't put it past the, past the finish line. The closest thing I have to, to something I wanted to throw away is TACOM M3 Lee. And that's only because those goddamn tracks pissed me <laughs> off. And then I bought aftermarket tracks for it from Scott. And then I sold them back to Scott. And then I bought a different set of aftermarket tracks that now I'm using on this other Sherman. So it currently has no tracks. So if I feel like buying another set of tracks, maybe I'll finish it because it's painted. But I also don't like the paint, and I don't really like the build. It, it was kind of sloppy, er, than how I build now, which is already sloppy. But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel bad throwing it away because I'm like, oh, I'm throwing away money. But who cares, really? I shouldn't. I should just throw stuff away, like a like a real man. You could be forgiven. Those M3 tracks are abysmal. They're terrible. When I built mine, I actually cheated. I cut the uh, locating tabs off on the idler wheels. So my idlers probably sit two to three millimeters forward of where they should be because the tracks uh, somehow morphed shape um, while I, you know, when I painted them, I was just fed up and I was like, F it, I'm cutting these things off. And, you know, with the tracks glued around the idler, it keeps that position or that, you know, that fix. But yeah, I just hacked off. Sorry, you triggered me with that M3 post (laughs) or comment. What about you, Scott? 
So I, I, I think if we, I mean, we're all very, very experienced modelers and I've kind of gotten to the point where there really isn't anything that we can do to a model kit that we can't fix one way or another. I mean, if it gets to the point, we, you know, where we have to buy another one and, and rob a part of it out of it, we can do that. So we could probably fix anything. But having said that also, I've also felt strongly that every single project has a certain amount of fun that's in that project. And you can get, and I have gotten to the point where that project just becomes, you just have to be honest with yourself. For me, this is just for me. You have to be honest and say, look, I can fix this, but I'm just at the point where I don't care. I'm not going to get any more fun out of this project. It's time for it to go. And then I part it out. I throw it against the wall, whatever. And it doesn't happen a lot, but I just, I think there's a part where you have to remember this hobby is supposed to be fun. And if I'm pushing myself through, or if I'm forcing myself to do something I, I don't want, I think there's a fine line there where all of a sudden it stops being a hobby and it starts being something a little more serious. And again, that's just for me. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree though, because there's been plenty of kits I've got to. It's like, oh, I'm loving this. And then a couple of days later, it's like, oh, I really want to see the back of this now. And that's when I know I'm in trouble because then I'll start looking for the next project before I've even finished the one I'm working on. But yeah, I, I completely get that. What about you, Chris? Uh, I'm like John and TJ. I have a real problem throwing things away. <laughs> Again, it, it sort of harkens back to what I said earlier. The farther along it gets, the more I know I've put into it. And, you know, my time's valuable for, you know, a lot of reasons, like not pretentious to say, but I, I you know, I have a daughter who I see half the time. I had, So the time that I spent modeling is time that, could easily have been spent doing any number of other things. Everything else is is kicking around here somewhere and existing under that silly pretension that at some point I will figure out whatever the problem was or whatever the hump was that I couldn't get over before and I'll build something great out of it. But you know, the likelihood of that happening with the the pile of newer, better kits that I also look at at the same time is 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 not likely to happen. So I've started looking at ways that I can take some of these and and at least find a better home for them, maybe somebody who can, if nothing else, they get used as paint meals. But if somebody else can make use of something like that, then, you know, I'm happier to see them go off and be finished somewhere. It's just making those connections to find out who, who those people are. So in that way, I guess I still feel like I'm, re- I'm, I'm acknowledging, you know, the value of it, that it's not just being thrown away and, and forgotten. So, so yeah, I don't, uh, I, I, I hold on to most everything and, and I probably will. It'll probably be something that people have to sift through eventually when I when I pass on. What do we do with this crap? <laughs> yeah, that's someone else's problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What about you, Doug? Oh heck yeah, I'll throw things away. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, I've got <laughs> over there. Doug's been uh, chomping it's, it's at the bit. You know what? I've watched I've watched uh some people I, I'm close to I won't say who it is, my in-laws, um, that have not thrown anything away for like 40 years. And and I watch my my collection of, of stuff I know I'll never get to that I've started and I would never hand off to anybody else that I don't want to finish. I When I moved two and a half years ago, I threw a bunch of stuff away. And the few times that I've had to shift around the old house and then the new one, I've damaged things to the point where I just don't feel like fixing them. Finished kits, um, the, best, the best one... This was years ago, back when I still kind of thought the movie Pearl Harbor was cool. I had built a Hazagawa 48 scale Stuka, the R2. And it was up on a bookshelf speaker. And 
during the Pearl Harbor attack, the the vibration from the sound rolled that sucker right off the edge of the speaker, and it did dive bomb in my living room, and uh, that was kind of the start of why why waste my time with this at that point? It was done. I was happy with it. I threw it away. It was that that simple. Lovely. I, I do like a, a very simple, straight to the point. Yeah, I just bitten stuff. That's um, no, that's interesting. The very, very, very different views from all of you. But um, yeah, that's that's all I really have to discuss for tonight. Well, say hey, hey guys. You know, I really appreciated that conversation. I think it's always important to discuss. You know, what's on our minds and and really talk about it and and understand where each of us come from. Maybe learn something. And you know, listeners. If anything stuck out to you during that discussion, please let us know. We're happy to, you know, and we really would love to hear your thoughts on it. I think everybody has a certain opinion and we certainly want to hear it and, and could improve our modeling. So please uh, chime in if you feel, uh, if you have something to contribute. With that, we're going to go over to our Modeler's Minute interview with, oh, guess what? Chris Sieber, we got him here already. Um, so we've certainly learned a little bit about him already. But Scott, let me kick it over to you to start this party. You bet. So, Chris, is it okay if I call you Mr. Luftdrum? Is that okay? <laughs> Whatever works, Scott. Whatever works. <laughs> we, we've heard a little bit about you, but give us a little background. Um, you know, tell us about how you uh, came to be a modeler. And Okay. So, uh, yeah, as, as came out during the, the roundtable interview, I started modeling somewhat by chance. A bunch of uh, family friends had gone down to Chautauqua, New York. The parents did all kinds of hippie arts and crafts, and the kids got thrown into day camp. At day camp, I did not want to do the war canoe for whatever reason, so they threw me with an older group, <laughs> and the older group promptly went off to a shop of some kind and started building models. And I just kind of sat there and went, I want to be part of this. And uh, anyway, so I, I sat there for an hour or whatever and watched some guy put dry transfers on a some kind of custom van or something like that and went through the rest of my day and got home that night and said, I want in. I guess bugged my mom enough to hop over to some general store or something and bought a, a monogram A4 Skyhawk in 148th and put that together in one night. I think, like I said in the last show, it, it basically looked like it had been caught in a spider web. There was so many glue strings coming off of it and the decals were peeling off because they don't stick to bare plastic. And that might've been the first model I binned, I think actually probably that very night. So uh, after that sort of, you know, I remember doing a bunch of small aircraft and stuff like that. You'd buy things on on road trips or cottage stays or whatever else. And then I think it was around 10 or, or 11, my my mom took me to the Toronto International Hobby Show, which was a big deal at the time. And you walk in the doors. And to me, a Canada, uh, through their distributor, had the, the prime space as you walked in. And I remember walking into the booth and they immediately handed you the catalog and some stickers. And, and the display case was a 120th scale Lotus John Player Special. And I just looked and I said, yeah, this this is it. And I've always, I mean, I've always loved race cars. I don't know why. I don't know where it started from, but, you know, it's it started a passion for building them. I've got a whole pile of them downstairs. I've built the John Player Special, I think, about three times now. And I've got the fourth one waiting in the wings. But yeah, to me, I've really sort of sealed the deal. And, and it's been pretty constant ever since. There was a break, I guess, when I was in my mid-30s. And you deal with being a parent and you deal with hitting it, you know, I went through a reset on life with a few different things and, and then eventually came back to it about three and a half years ago. And, and here I am. Well, that kind of answered the question I was about to ask. Um, but your models are so good. It should be considered illegal. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> how long have you been modeling? 
Well, like I said, I mean, it. I would say I've seriously modeled since probably my mid twenties or late twenties. Starting my late twenties, I kind of, or I guess mid twenties, uh, a buddy of mine and I, we would often head into Toronto and just hit hobby shops as a road trip. I used to go to the, the international hobby show in Toronto every year. It was held in November, and then I'd immediately book a week off of work to just come home and build stuff. And you know, it was great because I, I would just. I was young and I had money and I would go there and blow piles of it and just walk around with giant bags over my shoulders and get dirty looks from people at my excess. And, but that was, that's sort of when I started taking it, I guess, seriously. Um, you know, I started actually caring about how they went together. I mean, weathering still wasn't a, a thing that I had picked up on it. It actually, I'd actually really wasn't aware of it until just about after I, just until I tapered out of the hobby in my early thirties or mid thirties. But I think more than that, I've always had an interest in art, and I've, I've, I'm a graphic designer by trade. You know, I've always done art, and I think in the way I see the world, and in the way that I, that I visualize how certain effects could be done that have, you know, even if I haven't been doing modeling, they've still been working in the background. Like I'd, I'd go out for day long bike rides, and I'd see old pieces of equipment, and you kind of stop and take a picture. You sit there and stop and look at the way that you know, the sun has impacted the paint job on a tractor that's been sitting there for 20 years, right? And the way that it kind of gets that mottled, pockmarked kind of look to it. And, you know, I think my brain's just the kind of brain that stores that away. It doesn't take much, I guess, for it to come back once once you have an application for it. That said, there's certain things I sit there and agonize for weeks and months over how I'm going to recreate it. But so to answer your question, I, yeah, I'd say it's probably about 15 years that I've that I've been reasonably serious about it. Cool. So Star Wars or Star Trek? That's my question. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what are your inspirations? Like where, who and what are your inspirations for your modeling? Uh, Mike Rinaldi, I think is probably the most important one. And even though I, I'm not an armor modeler, I think that perspective that he brings to modeling, most importantly, I think the, the big question of, of why certain things are the way they are. Because if you can understand the why, I mean, I think, I feel like we're in a very how-to oriented hobby in a lot of respects. We see a lot of technique videos that tell you how to, how to do a certain technique on a certain vehicle, which is great because I, you know, technique's important, but I, if you're not asking the question of why is that effect like that on that vehicle, then I think you're missing a big part of it. And I think you're missing it in a way that doesn't allow you to replicate it easily at will. And Mike, when I started reading his books, you know, there was a lot of, of information that, to me, gave a lot of ex, uh, insight as to why he does the things that he does in a way that I could still apply it to the stuff that I was doing, even though it was completely different. And it just caused me to, to look at the way, you know, now that I've taken up weathering, it, it prompted me to look at weathering in a very different way than I think I would have had I kept modeling, say, through my 30s, right, where I would have probably been inclined to do things by rote because that's how I saw other people doing it. So, I mean, Mike's one, um, I mean, I enjoy watching Martin. Um, I'm amazed at the way that he's seems to be constantly looking for ways to reinvent processes. I think probably for his own amusement and, and education, but I think also for everybody else's, I mean, Adam Wilder is great. There's a ton of people that I follow on Instagram who, whose work I just find completely uh, inspiring. But no, I, I think it really comes down to those those three who, who, like I said, are ironically armor modelers, but I think have a, an approach that is are, is easy to learn from and easy to apply to just about anything. 
Thanks for that, Doug. And, and you know, this kind of leads me into my question, Chris. You know, you talk about your online influences and some of these figures in the hobby, but you know, I'd love to get back to kind of that sense of community within Toronto and kind of, you know, if you could talk about for some of our listeners that maybe don't know, I, I think Toronto is probably one of the richest communities in Canada for scale modeling. Would would you say? I'd love to be able that I to say that I could tell you that, but I've actually had very little contact with well, the scale modeling community here in Canada. It just blew up my question. (laughs) (laughs) Down in flames. You can't figure it off script. Oh, man. I did model in isolation pretty much my my whole life until about three and a half years ago. The reason I came back three and a half years ago, uh, for one thing, I had a girlfriend who was telling me, you know, you should get back into it. And then the second catalyst was actually my stepbrother who had decided at that point in his life that he wanted to try it. So he had already been to Hornet Hobbies and Dave Brown's shop, which I think everybody knows. And he had, you know, found the experience really great. And ironically, I had never heard of Hornet Hobbies, despite having driven into Toronto time and time again. So I ended up there and I talked to Dave a bunch of times when I would go in. And uh, so even though I was never connected to that community, it wasn't hard to notice, right? Because you heard it from Dave, you heard it from other people that I got talking about who were talking to Dave, you kind of just kind of insert yourself into conversations when you'd hear certain keywords and such. And, you know, and despite not having connected to it, I, I've, I've seen sort of secondhand and thirdhand what you're talking about, right? And I don't know if it's long Canadian winters that sort of keeps us focused on, ho- on the hobby and keeps us connected to people who, who love it as much as we do. But there certainly is, you know, a rich passion for the hobby in that city. And I think in, in Canada as a whole, I mean, you know, I just have to look at how many special guests have featured on podcasts who are Canadian, right? Like one of could probably qualify for Canadian government funding, you know? So I think, yeah, I think, I think I've, I've not experienced it myself. I've looked a bit more recently now that, you know, I've been on, on a couple of times and, you know, people have come out and said, Hey, you know, I, I didn't realize you're up there and that kind of thing. There's one guy on my Instagram. He lives probably about 15 minutes away from me. I don't think he knows it. <laughs> It'll be a fun surprise one day. But yeah, I mean, it's it's there. I've seen it. I just haven't had direct contact with it. You were there, I guess, a year before he closed. So you still saw, did you see Mike's Stug 3 in the case? Yes, I did. Persian? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was his Stug 3 inspiring. and the other one that I remember seeing, which I don't know if it's the same one or whether somebody basically worked off of somebody else's, but there was a crashed Russian helicopter, I think from Afghanistan, where it's it really on that... Yep, And I remember looking at that one every time I went in, just thinking like, holy crap, that's a masterful piece of work. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, he had such a great collection of built stuff in there, which I know some of it was from local people. Some of it was stuff that was given to him by, by guests and stuff. But, and it was just one of those great shops where it really rewarded you to dig around, right? Oh, it wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't like one of your strip mall shops where everything's on nice, clean metal shelving and stuff. It was, this is piled up over here and this is piled up over here and, Lifting that stack reveals this stack behind it, which probably somebody people hadn't seen for maybe two or three weeks. And, you know, it was it was like going in an old antique shop and just I had such fun digging around, finding something that was covered in dust. And yeah, that'll do. I'll take that. No, that's that's a great shop. And dang. So do you find yourself going to Wings and Wheels now a lot? Uh, Actually, I tend to spend most of my money at a shop a little bit closer to home uh, in Whitby. It's about 45 minute drive for me. And it means I don't have to get right into Toronto, but there's a shop there called Daily Hobbies, which has nice. been around for a while. The owner of which actually used to run a business called Perry's Perry's Rosin 
miniatures and he used to do um i think it's one of the more popular at least for me was uh, he did a ferrari 333 sp imsa car uh which i have downstairs and then a bunch of other i think custom cars and stuff but you know he runs a really nice shop he's got most of the stuff that i need as far as supplies goes i never have sort of trouble finding something on the shelves that i need to take home with me uh, even if i'm just going down for paint or something and then there's also a, i do a bit of shopping uh, with a gundam shop as well uh, mostly for supplies up in mississauga called panda hobby those, those folks go to the heritage con right yep yeah yeah they, they have all the cool japanese tools they got all the yeah exactly stuff. all the like, oh gosh so cool <laughs> Take all my money. <laughs> yeah. You know, you could, you could go there and drop like 500 bucks and I swear everything could fit in the palm of your hands, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Like little sanding things and yeah. little doodads, all tool related. And you're like, wow, where did all my money go? Yeah, so. exactly. I've, like I just took 500 out of my pocket <laughs> and I just put $500 worth of stuff back in my pocket because that's as big yeah. as I ever got. So yeah, so, yeah I mean, they've, they've, they've had great stuff. Uh, they carry a bunch of Goonsy and AK products. So I do my best to spend as much either locally in Toronto or locally in Canada. There's another shop in, in Winnipeg called Hoppy Sense that I spend a bit of money on, you know, just to, and they're a brick and mortar as well, but just anything to keep these shops, try and throw them, you know, spread it around as much as possible because we've seen a lot of shops disappear, certainly oh, yeah. in Toronto and I'm sure across Canada and, and I don't want to see any, any more of them disappear. I'm going to keep going with my questions. I'm going to do one more series and it's going to be the local show scene. You know, we, we met each other at heritage con, you know, outside of heritage con, do you find yourself going to tour can as well? And some of the others. So again, uh, heritage con was the first show that I had gone to. Dang man, your stuff is so good. Just walk away. Well, I didn't, I didn't realize. (laughs) First of all, thank you. Uh, secondly, I really hadn't actually finished anything by the time I'd first gone to heritage con. So I went to Heritage Con. I sort of made the impulse decision to to uh, make the drive down and check it out. And, you know, it's pretty good. There's actually another modeler here in town, uh, Steve Guthrie, who's a, a real accredited historian and armor modeler in his own right, and ran into him down there. And, you know, he's, I know you were twisting my arm and he was twisting my arm. And I was, okay, that's, you know, I like this vibe. I really enjoyed it. So I had plans to do Torcan and I had plans to do more Heritage Con. And then, of course, COVID hit. COVID. So all that just got put on hold. So, you know, I, I, I picked the absolute worst time to sort of get hooked in. Right. I had time or to the get best. one show. Or the well, best with, you know, time. Yes. Yeah, so I have time, which means I actually got to finish things, but <laughs> you know, that pent up de- desire to get out and, you know, see more models. Like, I mean, it's yeah. one thing to see things in pictures, but to see them in real life, right. Is, I mean, that's, that's really what I enjoy doing. And, uh, yep. so in that, in that terms, it was, it was kind of the worst time to, to get hooked into the show scene. So as soon as all this stuff lifts, I will be all over the place. All right. Um, I know we talked about what's currently on your bench. Um, what would be next on your bench? I think once a bit of a backlog's cleared off, I think the next thing is going to be a 172nd F4 Phantom. Uh, EJ Kai that I just picked up because the box art was beautiful. So I'm just going through now and sourcing some some aftermarket parts for it and trying to put all that together, uh, trying to find some some references for it. I had really hoped that I could get the fine molds phantom that came in the offshore blue scheme because I think that's just a fantastic color scheme on an aircraft. Unfortunately, I missed out. So 
I'm just going to build this one in the meantime and maybe hope that it comes back for a re-release. So there's that in the mix. Um, obviously, there's the the Sherman to finish uh, or the Firefly. After that, though, I, I might break ranks and I've got a couple 148 scale kits downstairs that I might I might bust into uh, or even maybe one of the wingnut wings that are sitting down there. I mean, who knows? I I took Dave Knight's lead and I planned out five or seven things that I wanted to build this year and I haven't touched any of them. So, you know, people talk about herding cats. I heard squirrels. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking the phantom will probably be next. I've just seen so many phantoms lately that I, you know, I have a compulsion to see what I can do in one seventy second scale. How it'll match up against what people are doing in bigger scales, which so far has been really impressive. Now, this is my favorite question to ask any modeler because there's just no limits. What would be your magnum opus build? Perfect grade uh, Millennium Falcon. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's funny. Growing up, I couldn't care less about the Millennium Falcon, right? Next to X-Wings and TIE Fighters and, you know, things that shot things up all the time. Uh, but, you know, with age comes uh, sophisticated tastes, I guess. And you start to appreciate some of the things that are maybe a little more unappreciated as a child and certainly i think the millennium falcon follows that that trend i mean watching that chase scene in episode seven where they're in the desert and they're flying through the star destroyer parts like i don't know if it's just the way that it was filmed i don't know i don't know what it was but that was just such a i could sit there and watch that sequence over and over and over again that I think that probably if it if I didn't have some something already that sealed my love of the Falcon, that was probably it. Yeah, easily easily the seven second scale perfect grade Millennium Falcon would be it. Yeah, for the for the detail that's in that kit and for the price of it, it'd, it'd be definitely a, a one off special build. Yeah, I, I mean that's the kind of thing. I, when I was younger, buddy of mine and I we used to fish all the time. We always talked if we ever caught a big fish, we'd build a coffee table to put a replica in. Well. I've migrated from putting muskies in a coffee table to Mount Millennium Falcons. <laughs> <laughs> Little Docking Bay 94 diorama or something in there and have, have it so that you could slide it out so that you could see it from the side and stuff. I got it all planned out. That would be awesome. Of course, that means I've got to take some time away from the hobby to learn how to woodwork a coffee table, but it's all good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for everything. Thanks for being with us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And remember, uh, you can leave us feedback about this or any other episodes of our show over at the Plastic Posse Facebook page. Or you can email us at PlasticPossePodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank all of our Posse supporters once again and give another shout out to our two awesome sponsors, Tank Craft and Sean's Custom Model Tools. Remember, there is no wrong way to enjoy your hobby. If it's been a while since you did, what are you waiting for? Thanks again for joining us for episode 30. We'll be back in two weeks, and we will be speaking with renowned modeler Ilya Yut from Israel, as well as our regular segments and much more awesome content about scale modeling, the best hobby in the world. Until then, yeehaw! Nice. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs>